Well, there goes the neighborhood. Good morning, everybody, and welcome, welcome to this. I mean, is there a better way to begin a Jewish holiday that I don't really celebrate than with this? This came. This happened. Yeah, I mean, this happens too. It's, it's, it's so hard to you sit in huts, you do stuff. But oh my God, look, this! <laughs> I will explain. But you're watching Dave's Gone By with. Bye. <laughs> I'm so excited. I can't even say the name of the show. Dave's Gone By with me, Dave Lefkowitz, my darling and adorable wife, who is, who is mm, mm, good for tolerating what, <laughs> what I do in my life and every Saturday from 9 until noon or thereabouts right here on this Facebook channel, Dave's Gone By. And as you can see, we ordered from eBay. I think it, yeah, it must have been eBay a couple of days ago. Thank you, sweetie. Oh, my goodness. These came. I didn't know what this, uh, there's no way to really bring it back and show you the full glory of what these things are. But if, if you watched the show last week, you know that I wanted to order this. I wanted to order a large inflatable Heinz ketchup bottle because, you know, potatoes care about this sort of thing. So, I bid, and I underbid, to buy one of these guys. It's, and by the way, this is not like life size. I should show you here. Here's, here's what they... Give me the music makers I need to... Oh, copy. sure, absolutely. Hold on. Uh, Joyce also needs our sound effects, because this is, this is a tremendously important thing. Um, so this is what they are. They're, they're about three foot tall. <laughs> and that. So here's the deal. Here's what happens or happened. I bid, you know, a certain amount, not a lot, on one of these that was up for auction. Let it go. I had to go to work. I couldn't, de I couldn't go back and check on it, and somebody outbid me. I don't think you actually did it. Oh, I, bid, I, I did bid. But what happened was I, w I got a notification from eBay that I was almost immediately outbid, and I never saw it. So it went away. Bye-bye. Farewell. It went away. But wouldn't you know? That, like the next day on eBay, they had not only this, not only the enormous inflatable bottle of Heinz ketchup that you see before you, looming, looming kind of like Donald Trump did over Hillary Clinton. Notice the, the luminosity of this bottle of Heinz ketchup, right? That, plus something I had no idea what the heck they were talking about. They, they mentioned something like a grill or a grill cover. Also Heinz for about the same price, but you had to buy them together. And I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't need a grill cover. We haven't grilled at all this whole uh, past summer season. I didn't realize, I didn't read closely enough that what they were talking about was something that actually inflates to look like an outdoor hibachi. That's what this is. I bid. I bid immediately. I think I, I, I bid like... $180 more than the asking price because I wanted these so desperately. And ladies and gentlemen, I didn't actually do that, but ladies and gentlemen, this came. And this came. And when I saw them both, I came. But ladies and gentlemen, we are celebrating ketchup today for no particular reason. It's already two or three weeks after potato day. Um, I don't know if there's such a thing as tomato day, but we have a tomato there sitting on a non-Heinz ketchup because we like to be diverse. We like to be inclusive, but if, if we needed some joy this week, 
if we needed something positive to be happening in life, in the world, this particular week. Besides me doing this show, besides me hosting Dave's Gone By every Saturday at 9 on this Facebook station, this Facebook channel, here it is. You don't need more than our president is in the hospital. Whatever you think of him, whatever you think of that, our president is in the hospital and his first lady is sick. Um, the second wave of COVID is coming, right? Um, they're still resolving. I don't think we've had that much in the way of rioting issues. And I mean, that might be getting better because everybody's right, masking again and staying away from each other instead of rioting and rallying. Not sure. But, you know, the, uh, unemployment is still close to 10%. Uh, people are fearful because you know, summer's over and it's going to get colder and the winter's coming and just everybody's like, Bleh, and Bleh, and no matter what, this <coughs> happened. Let me tell you what's going to be happening on this episode of the Dave's Gone By Facebookio, Podcastio, Programio of the stream that always begins like this. Good morning, good morning, good morning. There goes the neighborhood. And there was much rejoicing. Uh, didn't your meds kick in yet? <clears throat> David Lefkowitz here. He's a Long Island arts guy. He's got his own radio show. <clears throat> I want you all to really enjoy a wonderful program done by a fine artist. A glorious thing of unparalleled beauty. Dave's gone by. Dave is one of my very favorite broadcasters, so keep on listening to Mr. Dave. Thank you, Joe Franklin. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is a little bit after nine. Let me tell you what a wonderful show that we have for you on Dave's Gone By for this Saturday, October 3rd, 2020. And you know, in all my notes, and all my notes taking on the guests that we have in the neighborhood today, the, the segments that we're going to do, it completely slipped my mind that this 766th episode, Marks and, and Rabbi Saul Solomon, who will be here with us to, um, to talk with a guest and uh, maybe say a little blessing for the, the circus holiday, he will appreciate as much as anyone that today is our 18th anniversary of the program. We began, and, oh, oh, listen to the crowd. And I have to do, what makes me happy in a, in a sick way is that this crowd that you're hearing is pretty much the same crowd that NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has right now. It's the same thing. So I don't feel so bad. But this is the 18th anniversary of Dave's Gone By. We started October 6th, 2002. Honest to gosh, all those years ago on terrestrial radio, we were on WGBB on Long Island. As a, as a matter of fact, a Facebook friend of mine, Trevor Vassell, still is a DJ there, still does a, a gospel music show and does some of the board work and engineering when they have brokered radio on the weekends. But um, started there 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday evening, well, on a Sunday night, and stayed there for a few weeks. And then we moved to like Monday, where I had an hour and a half. And then back to Sundays, we're at an hour again, and then back to another day. And then eventually moved around a bit, but was on there for many years. Went away, went to Colorado, was on the internet only for a few months, and then almost took kind of a hiatus. There's, there's one year there where I think we did 10 shows the entire year 
or else we would already be you know, well into our 800th show. Uh, and then discovered or hooked up with the university where my wife's been teaching, where I was teaching, and did many years of wonderful radio on the college station at the University of Northern Colorado. And just have, um, it, it grew into what it is now, essentially, this Saturday morning laid back program. We used to play music because it was partially a music show. Can't do that now, as you know, because of YouTube and Facebook rules. But <laughs> every time I complain about anything, Joyce plays the crying baby. But it's true. It's a, otherwise, and aside from some technical difficulties we had at the station, was a really, really fabulous about eight years that we were on college radio. And then the college radio station went because all university funding from all the colleges everywhere went and we, um, we survived. Joyce helped me discover the wonders of Facebook and live streaming and video streaming for the past three, four years. And that's what we've been doing. And that's what Dave's Gone By has evolved into as we reach today our 766th episode. And we're calling it Me Too. Me Too. Not just because um, we want all of you to be part of the neighborhood and to enjoy the show and to become Davidians. But because the guest on today's show is a playwright, what we would call a veteran and prolific playwright, also a writer of nonfiction. His name is Charles L. Mee. And um, his friends call him Chuck. I don't know if he will let the rabbi call him Chuck Mee. But, but he, Charles L. Mee, we'll, we'll use the full appellation for, for the moment anyway. Every, basically, uh, he was writing plays back in like the 60s during the era of the off-Broadway off movement that gave us Sam Shepard and... Uh, I think John Guare and Bob Reinhold and Maria Irena Fornes, he was in that sort of group, right? And then moved on and realized you don't make a living even <laughs> doing off-off-Broadway if you stay there. And then he started doing historical nonfiction and writing a bunch of books about political figures, both past and present. And then I, I hope the rabbi will ask him what moved him back into creating for theater because at one point, 20-something years ago, at the Humana Festival at Louisville, they did a play of his called Big Love, which was one of his many adaptations of Greek comedies and dramas. That show was a particular mix. And it was so wild and kinetic and different and still very connected to the Greeks, but also still very much his own vision. And it just was a knockout of that year's festival. It was done everywhere since. As a matter of fact, I mentioned the university where uh, Joyce and I are uh, in Colorado there about five years ago, they did the show as part of their student production stuff during the year. So Big Love was his big calling card that vaulted him into being a playwright sort of full time. Oh, and welcome. Joyce just said Trevor from WGBB just joined. Um, and so he, since then, He's written bunches of other plays. Bob Rauschenberg, America. He does some pieces that, that take on modern historical figures too. More Greek-related plays, more plays that are mixes of multimedia and dance and performance. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons, I mean, we would be glad to have him any time, but one of the reasons Charles Mee is going to be on this program is he's got a virtual digital show that's going to be happening 
and is being produced by cutting ball theater, which always makes Rabbi Saul cringe because, you know, if, if you're in his business, you don't want to be cutting any balls. But, <laughs> yeah, that's my David Letterman uh, page stamp. But Cutting Ball Theater is doing a new play of his called Utopia. And yeah, you, you're not going to go into a theater building to see it. It will be um, done online live. You can watch it and stream it later. Let me, let me give you the, um, the info on that, if I can find it. Here it is. It's uh, October 16th through November 15th, 2020. Uh, you have to, I think you have to go to Cutting Ball's website to find it. I, I didn't make a note of the actual site. But yes, Charles Me. Charles Me. This will help you remember the name. Charles Me. Going to be in the neighborhood talking to the one, the only, the Jewish Rabbi Saul Solomon on today's episode of the Dave's Down by Facebook, your podcast, your programio of the stream. And this is really cool. I'm also a little envious of Rabbi Saul because I interviewed Charles Me back in the day when Big Love was making its like New York and, and regional theater debuts um, when I was writing and editing for Playbill.com. So it, this is bringing it full circle. It's like saying, hey, what's happened in the 20 years since I talked to Charles Me? We're going to find out on Dave's Gone By. Now, speaking of guests, we will also have the return, the big battle, the big match between Leslie Hoban Blake and David Sheward. They, are, they were, last week, our contestants in the Today, Yesterday trivia quiz. We're bringing them back, because I don't want to cast aspersions, but maybe this will add a little tinder. Last week, David Sheward trounced Leslie Hoban Blake in our Today, Yesterday quiz. So she is itching, if you will. She is just hungry for revenge. So that'll be happening at about 10 o'clock today, Eastern Time. We'll have the rematch of our Today, Yesterday quiz, uh, Leslie Hoban Blake versus David Sheward. That'll be exciting, one hopes. We will also have, <clears throat> excuse me, our Colorado Limerick of the Damned, where we are going to go to Custer, Colorado. Custer, you have named after you know who. Uh, and this is where every week, I bring you a short poem, usually ribald and disgusting, all about a place in Colorado, because that's where Joyce and I were living. And today we go to Custer. And then, oh, and Greeley Crimes and Old Times. We always love doing that segment. And if there is time, speaking of time, um, while I read the names of the folks who are watching the show, could I ask you very kindly, sure, no rush, to open up the dictionary, Dave's big dick, dictionary, and flip to a random word. Joyce is going to open up this New World Webster's dictionary from 40 years ago. Flip and put her finger right down on a word, and my job will be to say or or oh talk about. Oh no, what word did you want? What? It's the word plunder. Plunder. I thought it said pluffer with my glasses. It says plunder. Pluffer would be difficult. Plunder, I think I could manage. Plunder. Plunder. That's a, oh, what a plunderful word. Let's see. I, I thought it said pluffer because it's <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't mind having a fluffer for this show, if you know what I'm saying. But plunder. The word means, if I could, if I could read it, here we go. 
Wait, they're, they're actually, you know, you were joking, yeah. but there is a word called cluffter. Maybe that's what I hit, because I heard the word cluff. Wait a minute, you couldn't, hold on. Where the hell is plunder? Oh, no, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> it's, it's an ink misprint or a, a, an inky problem with this book where it looks like plufter. It is the word plunder. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, hold on. Thank you, honey, for making me feel like that a dodo. No, 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 here, here. I don't know if you can see. I'm going to hold this up to the screen right there. Because I thought, honestly, I thought there was a word called plufter, but it's plunder with an ink drop over the end. It means to rob a person or a place by force, especially in warfare, to take property by force or fraud, for example, to steal, or um, the act of plundering, pillaging, or the goods taken by force or fraud. So plunder will be the word on today's episode of Dave's Gone By. Are 766. So, babe, before we get to all those wonderful segments, and, and as we say hello to Michelle and Trevor and Gaylord and David and, and Bill. Yeah, and oh, Lisa. Lisa. I have, for some yeah. reason, I made a blue boy in a public watch party and a private one, so I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, is that right? Who, if you're tuned in, welcome to me. Lisa and Julie, too. New. Welcome to Lisa and Julie. Is it our Lisa from Colorado? No. Oh, it's a different Lisa. It's hello. A Lisa. I said that yeah. David. Welcome to David and me, and I said, Charles, well, me, and I said, two critics face off in the contest. Right now to spell David's name. David who? Oh, David. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Um, Our guests will be David Sheward and Leslie Hoban Blake. And and welcome to Julie, all the Davidians watching the program. Yes. So, how was your week, babe? How you doing? It was good on Peter. Just say Peter. Hey, we have, a, we have a Peter watching. We have several Peters watching. I don't want to know. How, how are you doing? How's your week? Very good. I'm very good. I'm very tired. Joy's very tired. Speaking of Peters, we, we did get to watch the movie version oh, of... I loved it, David. What a good... Tell that. I, I didn't know which movie I was talking about. Uh, we, we saw The Boys in the Band which was a new adaptation by Joe Mantello of the old 1968 play by Mark Crowley, uh, all about gay men getting together for a party. And it's very good. If you had a chance to see it, I would recommend it. I've never liked the piece. Uh, I saw the William Friedkin, probably when I was too young to watch it, but I saw the Bill Friedkin movie from 1970, and it just seemed really chaotic and not pleasant. And then saw an off-Broadway production of it decades back, and just felt like uh, it's a lot of yakking and complaining and everybody's nasty and violent bitching. I'm like, eh, eh, I'm thrown into this room with these people I don't like for two and a half hours. What am I? Um, but this movie finds that balance. It, it's very good. Uh, it ha- yes, the characters do snipe at each other. And the lead character, somewhat magically, he's been sober for a long time. He has one drink, one scotch. And suddenly he becomes the most horrible drunk you've ever seen and then forces people to tell truths and do a game that they don't want to play. Um, so that's a little hard to believe, but it's... No, I, it's I think it's yeah. true. I think it's yeah. like, I don't believe he was really drunk. I believe there's some people that they normally feel that way, but they can't, they're repressing it. And so they use alcohol, quote unquote, or anything to free themselves. Oh. So I think it was like a fake thing where he's like, now I've had a drink, you know how I am when I'm drunk. It just gives him an excuse to let loose. 
Oh, that's, that was my that's a great, I don't know that's a very cool insight. Because remember, um, one other character in there, the quote unquote, as he calls himself, the, the ugly pockmarked Jew character, Harold. Uh, you know, he says at one point, oh, the revolution is beginning. The turning of this lead character from being like this buttoned up nice guy. And he says, revolution complete when, when uh, this, this fellow has turned into a complete jerk. So, I don't know, I was glad to see it. I'm very glad to have <clears throat> caught, and it reminded me that all it takes is one really good staging, one really good revival, one really good idea to take something that you went, meh, and then go, oh, wow, that was really worth reviving. That was really worth seeing. It happened to me with Death of a Salesman. Who didn't read Death of a Salesman in junior high school, right? Who didn't see, um, you know, Frederick March or whatever, and I saw Dustin Hoffman, and I said, oh, it's a good play. It's a classic play that we dutifully go to see. And then um, catching the Broadway production with Brian Dennehy. God, must have been 15, 20 years ago. That was so incredibly uh, profound and powerful. And going, oh my God, this really is among the very best plays ever written. Just staggering out in the theater. And like, Death of a Salesman. That's why we read Death of a Salesman. And then seeing it again, <clears throat> oh, with that, um, the actor who died, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And going like, yeah, if this had been my first Death of a Salesman, I would have been, yeah, right? So, but you was, see the one. It was so well staged, I mean, especially for TV, sometimes it gets kitschy, but it was beautiful. Yeah, well, Joyce is talking about the Boys in the Band again, but seeing that version of Boys in the Band, I wonder how many plays that I've seen once that don't really get revived again aren't revived again because that once was mad. Tree sharp, hurt, blood, me stick, stick, 
in Elephant and plunder Elephant. There we go. Some caveman, among a million other cave people, didn't. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But think about that. It took. It just took one. That's insight. But were sentient. They had to be. They you know, they're. they're <laughs> you know, um, for most of the cavemen, I assume were like most, say, women in the five towns of Long Island. Like, mm, let me put a wig on and go shopping. But, but <laughs> me, <laughs> the, the uh, there were some cavemen. Other cavemen were busy thinking about improving their lives. Uh, cavemen ask themselves, why am I here? Can I find a waste machine? You have them. No, I'm missing the one with them. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, Don't be bitchy to me. Oh, there you go. Cavemen, I, I have to think, being have the technology to have most of our, our lower-level thinking already done for us, right? If I have a frozen piece of meat... You know, I don't have to spend half my day of thinking how eat meat, must how build fire, rub stick. You know, it's like oh, stick throw in the microwave. That's already done. So I, in 2020, can have higher level thinking and understanding. A caveman had to go through all of this stuff just to stay alive, in order to then think, huh, sky, why sky blue? Oh, water also blue. Sky mirror to you know, or or whatever went through a caveman's mind when he tried to puzzle out his world or her world. You know, I know I think about stuff like that sometimes. When I listen, the stuff that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> what, do I, what do I have listed? Hey, hun, guess guess who got coronavirus this week? <laughs> guess who got sick with a hoax disease? You know what they say? Like they say, like don't tempt fate, right? Like you can't. I saw a Facebook post. You know, I don't look at the Facebook. But somebody said 200,000 people are dead and one person gets it and everybody's scared. Yeah, that's... You know, like, it's like the person put, like, emoji of them, like, putting their hands up, you know, like one of those caricature things. Yeah. I don't know. I feel... I don't want anyone to get sick. But I think, like, like if you're a, if you're a public figure, most public figures get tested, like, once a week. Oh, he was, te- he was yeah. tested constantly. Yeah, yeah. Like, two days earlier, he probably didn't have it. I wonder, though, if he had a really trying to give survive people like i said oh, to, no. I'm saying to your family like when he went on the tv they do hair makeup yeah. they do the mic like people are touching him close. at that point he's i'm yeah, sure but even yeah. then like you don't know what he's shedding i mean like yeah. hair and makeup they have to do makeup with your mask off right i mean i oh, don't know my. like that's what it scares me because all those people who fixed him for the 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 you know flight or whatever yeah that's dangerous the vice presidents are going to be 12 feet apart. Right. Well, that so, makes yeah, sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, the, all the makeup people and the hairstyly people would have been wearing yeah, masks. Yeah, I don't know, David, like, yeah. was there, like, you know, from his nose, like, you know, jub jub from the nose, or right, yeah. wet. Like, you don't know what they're, and the hair, like, they're in close. I mean, that's like. That's a really good, that is yeah, a, a yeah. by the way, we didn't even say who it was. Um, in case you haven't heard, in case you've been living under a rock, President Trump, uh, and his wife, Melania, both have coronavirus. He's the, kid, the, the <clears throat> prince or whatever, Baron or... I don't think they're talking about the kids. I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe they're healthy. Maybe he's in a boarding school. Yeah. But what was really funny is, not funny, the, the day before, this is what I was thinking, man, before <clears throat> Melania caught it, is that the first person they mentioned was neither of them. It was Hope Hicks. Two oh. days ago, that, that sexy mama, Hope Hicks, she caught it. 
And then they mentioned he caught it, and I'm like, uh huh. And she's been traveling with the president. They did not mention he caught it. They tweeted it at 1 a.m. Yeah, yeah. They should not tweet at 1 a.m. for the president. Which means that you apparently can't get COVID just by getting something on these two fingers, if you know what I'm saying. But yeah, but it was kind of, in some ways, it was a little bit heartening that Melania got it too. Because, uh, you know, we've heard so much about their marriage and we know so much about Trump's physical proclivities with other women that I guess they do still sleep in the same bed. They still kind of cohabit. Remember when they were first... He first got into well, office. She was like, and she's like, yeah. I'm going to stay in New York. You go yeah. to BC. Yeah. She was supposed to be in that hotel on Central Park West or, or one of the Trump Tower things. But apparently they're together enough that she got it from him. He got it from her, maybe. Or they both got it from Hope Hicks. Because you know, get a little freaky in the sheets there. Uh, <laughs> and now President Trump, who has, quote, unquote, mild symptoms, is in the hospital. And the waiting game begins because we both know this could go so far in any direction either way. Because if he just has mild symptoms the whole way through, and of course he's getting the best free medical care in the world now, and he comes through it like nothing, and he's a 73-year-old man, so he is in the zone, if you will, for the people most in danger from being symptomatic from COVID, from getting things that will be lasting and permanent and difficult. If he comes through it like a champ, it's another way for him to say, and for the GOP to say, is that yes, it's a nasty flu and it kills people in nursing homes, but everybody else, you either don't even ever get symptoms or you get mild symptoms and get over them, or you get fairly heavy flu-like symptoms and you still get over them. Yeah, but this is the, this, so this is the, the secret trick. Yeah. I feel bad for Melania because she has kidney disease. Does she really? Remember in the past, she had some kidney oh. stuff. And if, if you have any, I mean, I don't know what they also have in their secret lives, yeah. but if you have comorbid stuff, you're increasing your risk. So I'm worried about, like, it, it upsets me that, like, I don't want to, yeah. you know, like, I think everybody's so burnt out. Like, everybody knows people who've had it or, God forbid, people who've died. It's just, it's, it's just like, it's, um, it's like going through the, it's like, it's like compounded grief. Like when you've gone through something once and you go through it mm-hmm. again and you go through it again, it's like you, you just yeah. become, you know. Except pretty much all my uh, Facebook followers who tend to be left wing, yeah. they're not grieving at all. But, but I don't think anybody wants to see anybody suffer. I don't, I oh, don't think oh, so. Oh, yeah. you'd be amazed how many people want to see. Don- and I'm not one of them because I, in many ways, and if you watch this program week after week, you know that in a lot of ways I support Oh Donald God. Trump and some of his policies. Okay, in other boy. ways, he's embarrassing. Okay, and proud boy. <laughs> no, yeah, you would be, you nothing would, proud about me. You would be what the proud boys kill. I mean, people are still scoffing when they, they say that Donald Trump could win the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm like, okay, find another president who sat Israel down with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain you know and make peace. It's called hard Fine. However, he did it. You know? George W. Bush didn't do it. Obama couldn't do it. Um, Clinton didn't do it. Last person who made peace in the Middle East was an absolutely terrible president was Jimmy Carter. But he did that. Yeah. And and maybe for a lot of people, Trump is a terrible president. But he did that too. That's that's quite terrific Somebody's and amazing. Coming. You know. <laughs> ketchup. And then, by the way, we know that Donald Trump loves ketchup. So so. Again, no matter what side of the political fence you're on, if this makes him feel a little better, that's that's fine by me. But 
yeah, no, there are times that I despise them, and sometimes when I'm like, you know, I hear the litany of, of people on the left saying how he's the worst president ever, and he is so far from that, um, that, that they, it's annoying. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying, it really is, he's not. He's, we lived through George W. Bush, and I lived through Nixon. <laughs> he is not the worst, and Carter, he's not the worst president ever, let alone in my lifetime. That's the point, that it depends on your age and your perspective, right? Yeah. There's someone who was born in like 1813. Like, <laughs> Let me tell you about William Henry Harrison. Yeah, oh yeah, my God, Buchanan! Oh, this Trump guy—he got nothing on Buchanan. Oh my! That was actually true. But but here's the deal: it's like, but what could go either way is the sense of if Trump gets over it easily, and his family does, right? Or, or yeah, but I don't oh. think so. He's been airlifted to the hospital. He's been airlifted. He was airlifted. That's just, that's over precaution, for goodness sakes. I mean, if he's having some breathing trouble, I get that. You know, although if you're going up high in a thing and you have breathing trouble, not not the best idea. Listen, you don't go to a hospital unless you need oxygen. If you're the president? I don't know. They, they could make a hospital. They probably have a hospital within the White House, I would think. Yeah, I'm sure I they do. think that the, in the White House they would have a... But they want to keep him for a week at Walter Reed, and then it will be another week or two of quarantine if God willing and when he gets over it. But again, as I'm saying, if it really is, they're being over precautious and he's got very mild symptoms, but the GOP can say, see, see, there was no need to shut down the world. Yes, masking, yes, distance, but no need. But the Democrats will say, if, if he does get sick or if Melania gets seriously ill from this and, and goes through, I, I will ventilator stuff, but is like a horrible thing. They, they hid that Roosevelt was in the wheelchair, right? right? So, like, I mean, you know. But you can't hide it anymore. This is not 1930. Who was the baby, Kim Jong-il, the baby who was missing for like weeks? Oh, yeah. You know, so sometimes like you can hide stuff, even with social media. Well, there, and there are also, uh, yeah, it's, and because we live in the QAnon era, there are so many conspiracy theories about Trump is making this up, so that he can make believe that he's sick oh, and then get over it so easily and come back and say, see, COVID is a big nothing. You know, 200,000 people rise out of your graves and oh, <laughs> show us how well you're doing. Don't say that. Oh, cheaper. Yeah, that, that would be. Well, that's why, I don't know if you heard that beeping that's outside. That's one of the dead people. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to see. I mean, all we can do, of course, week after week during this crazy time is see. And we got word at work Friday and Thursday, and I work in a school district, that our, our superintendent is still very much playing. This is before the news broke about President Trump. And he said, yes, we, in two weeks after Columbus Day, the week after that, we're going to bring our kids back five days a week. Right, because now we're on this insane schedule of the kids are learning all at home on Monday, and some coming on Tuesday, and the rest coming on Wednesday. But if they're exposed, they have to quarantine at home. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, and and then these come back on Thursday, and these come back on Friday. So we've had this crazy schedule, and then the schedule is going to get even crazier, and uh, when everybody starts coming back, like five days a week, and then of course we who are in the support tech. Staff, if you will. I have to say this: the day that the children go back, there's going to be massive parental partying. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be one parent fiesta. And quite honestly, I'm not sure how they're going to do it because I don't think they're going to bring every single student back 
on Mondays. They couldn't. But then, then how do they work it? Because they've got A days and B days. Or half coming, A half coming. Which Everybody one's Monday? Comes in, there's no, there's all D days. Yes, yeah, that's right. So, and it's just going to be a, a further mess. And this was announced like a day or two. The, the superintendent had was very firm about kids belong in school. They belong well, in school. Know, the They're fear, not going to get sick. The fear is that they they stop the um, ACT and SAT. A lot of people are afraid. Like, how are the kids? Even the kids who do well online, how are they going to pass standardized testing? You know, and all the schools get money based on their scores. Oh, yeah. How are any of these kids going to score? I'm telling you, at some point, they're going to delay the test. They're going to cancel them until next year. They're going to figure out other yeah, ways to do things. There's a lot of money and stuff that depends yeah. on this, Mara. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's part of my job is to, to report data yeah, yeah. back to New York State. And it's like, you know, we're still figuring out from day one uh, a month ago, being of school, how to report the data because of this crazy A-B system that's throwing us completely for a loop. And every time we think we get something right, we end up screwing up two other things. And now, when the whole schedule will change in two weeks, yeah. it's like, <laughs> but I, I wonder if our superintendent will rethink, A, as God forbid we start getting a second wave, and B, when the president of the United States gets this disease. I don't, I don't think so. I think there's some pressure. I think it's like universities want to go back because they want the money for the, want the money. Yeah. You know, for the food and for the, I think that, you know, it's like I was telling your mom, like if you, what happens if you don't have anybody to help you with your kids and you have a job and if you don't have a job where you're lucky enough to be virtual and you got to haul yourself in, what do you do with your kids? Right. You know, you have, where are you going to put the kids? Husband and wife have to work to make a living. So they've been dealing with this for since March, though. They've, know, they've figured but, out a way. But, you know, it's like, you know, the longer you have a situation, the more pressure. So, yeah. yeah. I could see it. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know. But I'm saying don't change horses in midstream. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're settled into this system of remote Monday, Tuesday this, Wednesday that, Thursday this, Friday like that. Even the parents, and I know parents who have PhDs, and these are smart, like super smart, well-trained, you know, multitaskers. And they're they, driving Ubers, yeah. And they can't get the schedule right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you have more than one kid on different schedules, one of my students had two kids, one computer. She has one oh. computer in the house that, that'll handle the software. How do you get your both kids on one computer at the same time? Yeah, and there's, you put the kid on the phone. I mean, how are you well, we this. We're in the kind of school district where part of the, the thing was every kid took home either an iPad from the from the school school property, uh, or if they're in sixth grade, uh, a Chromebook. So that we made sure that every kid got a device. I think that's great. So that I mean that's that's kind of kind of smart, kind of neat. Yeah. Anyway, but but talking, you know, the funny part is maybe Trump. Wanted to catch this disease just so people would stop talking about his tax returns. I wonder though, like of the people who say like he's faking, that's interesting. No, I, uh, I didn't hear that. That's no, I, you hear every possible yeah, theory yeah. that you, you could. Let me look on the Facebook and see what the people say. If you see the cover of Abbey Road, you see that Donald Trump is walking with um, walking barefoot with the other Beatles. Really? You know, there, there is this thing. There's, there's back masking going on, and that in fact Ringo is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is being played by uh, Pete Townsend of The Who. It's a very, very strange conspiracy theory that they have going on. It could be true. You never, never 100% know. But the, the whole, I don't know, this whole Trump taxes thing for me is, that was a tempest in a teapot anyway, 
although they tried to make it like a media volcano. He paid $750 in taxes in this year, for the year. Oh, my God. $750 in taxes. I'm going to get depressed. And I'm saying this is not news. Donald Trump, when he was running for president, told everyone, I don't know if this was his quote, of like the only idiots pay taxes. It was. And he said, it's like, look, I got lawyers. I know how to play the system. I have an accountant. I have a team of accountants and attorneys, right? They know how legally to take money and keep as much of it as I can and, and give just the tiniest amount that the government demands. So if I can declare a loss of $10 million for the year and pay just you know, a couple of fees um, to file taxes and, and you know, a couple of hundred bucks for the money I did make, I'm going to do that. And, and, and while it sucks, and while I look at the level of taxes that Joyce and I pay every year as a joint file, it's going to be, you know, kind of because we're working, you know, two jobs and I, I'm making a little more money at the job I have now. We're going to be paying more. It's like, um, you know, and, and compared to what I pay, compared to what he paid for one year, paid nothing the next year. But and, and I, I don't just do the quick filing. We pay a guy like 200, 250 bucks a year to go through our taxes because we're in two different states. Right? Um, and he hides what well, he can't, doesn't hide. I don't have a, a shell corporation in the middle of the Seychelles Islands. Yeah. Well, I wish I, I wish I had money to hide. Let me tell you, don't, don't. And now I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much withholding I should have for this current job that I've got because it's just nuts, right? And going through, and, and Donald Trump said a couple hundred bucks for that bad year I had. When I still had gold, pla- forget gold-plated toilets, when I was still sitting on gold toilets and flying on my own airline wow. and doing this. No, I'm oh, saying Trump. And what? In years when he took multi-million dollar yeah, losses. You know, I used to live, on, um, live with someone who went to Rockefeller University, so yeah. I lived right near his teleport, and I see him in Ivana. Uh, no, what's the, what's the first one? Ivanka. Ivanka. Yeah. I see the, all the whole family, like, you know, like um, crouching down and going to the heliport. And I just remember looking at it and going like, oh my God, like, you know, if you want to get to the Upper West Side and you don't want to take a cab, you hop in your heliport. You hop in your heliport. And that may have been one of the years when he declared a loss and didn't have to pay any taxes. But again, he did it. If if we didn't do this, however, for people, and and let's leave aside pandemic times, uh, if we didn't do this for corporations and we didn't do this for people, there there wouldn't be any off-Broadway. There won't be any museums or opera houses because these things are funded half the time by begging corporations, look, you know, if you, if you give this much for charity, if you take this much um, towards tax deduction uh, you know, and it's tax deductible, you won't have to pay it at the end of the year. So, of course, they're going to take a certain percentage and do this with it. David, how come you become an accountant? Well, no, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying like we're doing accounting the rules are there and, and, and if Trump didn't have to pay, why should he? Like when Joyce and I, years ago, we bought a house on Long Island together. You know, we were living, uh, we just got married. We, oh no, forget that. No, no, I'm sorry. When, when we bought a house in Colorado, we were living, renting a house for a few months in Colorado. 
right? And we, then we say, okay, we want to play somewhere on. We're staying. Uh, the job's good. The thing's good. We love Colorado. Let's let's stay here. And we, so we go looking for a house, and we're thinking, what's a good time to buy? Should we? Shouldn't we? And it was the middle, or or towards the middle of the George W. Bush recession, but Obama was in office. And Obama, bless him a million times. Well, my mommy's mom told us, mom yeah. said, yeah. And, and, and her mother mentioned, you know, there's this thing where if you're a first-time home buyer, you get like 8000 or maybe $10,000 back from the government if you buy a house. And the, but this is not your first house. It's your second house. Obama is giving back $6,500 to people who buy their second home. Right. I mean, you've sold another home. You're buying a, a home for the second time in your life. And so that was like a deciding factor. We went, we looked at a place we thought it was lovely. The neighborhood was great. It was close to school. And we're like, you know what, let's do this. And, and now, of course, you're dickering with the owners of the place over the cost of the house. And it was a certain amount. And we looked at each other and, and we knew and we knew that the sellers knew. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know what, we're going to get back. $6,500 on the price of this house. We have to pay when there was like a $2,000 difference. It's not like New York where yeah, everything's over $10 million. Dollars. Like New York, yeah. you constantly debate over house prices. Colorado, what they list is usually what they sell. Very close to or it. with oil money. Like we saw that documentary of the, the killer where he was yeah. an oil guy. But because of oil money and fracking in the past, people would pay cash and pay over. So generally, homes go over the asking price, and they go quick yeah. in Colorado. Yeah, they it's do. Different. It's a different, wasn't different. And also, I mean, it, this was already like ten years ago when Joyce yeah. and I bought this house. So yeah. Colorado real estate hadn't quite, you know, in, in where we were living tell all over Colorado. Just asked about the taxes. It was the well, that that's I told I will I'll, I'll tell that story. But my point in this is, it was like I could have said, you know what, uh, and, and we did it back and forth with the the owners and saying, you know, you want $2,000 more, we want $2,000 less. I thought about it and it was like, you know what, we're getting back this money from the government. Let's meet in the middle. We'll, you, we'll give you $1,000 more. You come down $1,000. I mean, it was literally, it was an email to the owners of the house. There weren't even any wow. brokers involved. I just said, you know what, you want this, we want this, meet in the middle. And they did. it was like nothing. It was fabulous. But to mention that he was one of the most like, Hang them high, judges in the county. <laughs> yeah. Don't understand that. He may still, God willing, he's still alive. But here's the deal. Um, <laughs> could, I could have told, I could have not applied for this payback. I could have just said, you know what? The house is this much money. And why should, you know, the government, which is in trouble now, there's a recession all over America. They need our taxes. They need money to fill the coffers, to build the roads, to have traffic lights, to do all. Uh, why should I take $6,000, $6,500 from the government back just for buying a house, which we wanted to do anyway? Yeah. Of course I didn't do that. Of course I, I, I looked in the bank uh, like a month later, and there's $6,500 returned to me after purchasing the house. And I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. And if that's the modus operandi, of rich, rich, rich people who legally can figure out a hundred I'll take it so that they wind up paying $750 a year instead of 7.5 million a year on what they own. It sucks for the rest of us, but then fix the tax laws <laughs> as if. Fix the loopholes, make it different, make it change, but you cannot 
blame Trump for um, for paying the minimum that he can in taxes unless he's committing fraud, unless he's lying about how much he made and how much he lost. But, you know, you ask the people at the casinos if he's lying about how much he made and lost that year, um, you know, how much he owed them when the casino closed. So I, I, can't, I, you know, I can't hold that against him. I don't think that um, we should. There was a point when we refinanced because a friend of Joyce's told her, hey, you know, this credit well, union. The, the story goes, yeah. so I have a friend that I go to, an ind- I used to go to an independent theater in, in Colorado, and we have a drink and we go see like the midnight movie. And she said to me, it was like 11 o'clock, she's like, you know, I really got a good deal on the mortgage to the credit union. And I'm like, really? And she said, oh yeah, it expires tonight midnight. And then what do I do? I call you, I'm like, honey, I'm going to be home late. But FYI, can you do it? And it got, remember, it got stuck. And we did it. And it was, it was during a holiday weekend. It was from Kippurri. Yeah, yeah. Then it gets stuck in there. Well, because it was a weekend. It was a weekend night, and they couldn't find They got back date the paper one day. Oh, it was my a, God. A whole, and I couldn't sign anything on Monday because it was from Kippurri. <laughs> oh, my God. But the point was, the credit union, we, she got a tip from a friend. And, and it was a public thing. We just didn't know about it. There was nothing secret. It wasn't, it wasn't like a stock. Listen, we work tip. for a public institution. None of yeah. us are making big dough. Yeah. And then suddenly we were able, and she said, you know, you can lower, you're currently paying, what, five and a quarter percent on your mortgage. They're doing this thing where there's no fees except like a, a one-time payment of, I think, $100 or 50 bucks. And then your monthly mortgage rate will go down to three three point nine. like, what do you call them? No inspection or no one There was nothing. There was no. It was no points. No to refinance your house through this credit union. All you had to do was do the paperwork in time, and you, we lowered our mortgage rate by more than a percent. Don't you think that the credit unions are to support the people because they help us get the car guy? Like I think the credit unions are really to support people and help them achieve what they want. I mean, we've had that experience. But this for, was an educationally based one. For many things, they're better than banks. I got to tell you. You know, and they'll give you, they'll give people who are struggling uh, a credit card. You know, yes, they, they can, I mean, yes. I think they're, they're marvelous and they were great for us. Yes. Now, again, should I have not taken that advice? Should I have just said, all right, I'm going to leave our mortgage at five and a quarter percent? No, no. I was like, hey, we can do almost nothing and lower our monthly mortgage cost. Well, you I know don't, why? Sure. The, because the joke was my, yeah. my colleague also had a, a condo, a co-op. And she said to the townhouse, and she said, here's the rate I'm going to get, and here's how much I'll make over the lifetime of the mortgage. I was like, she was just a smart woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she like explained it in a way oh, that yeah. was so tantalizing. I was like, oh, my God. We went from a 30-year mortgage to a 15 and barely yeah. paid, especially because we lowered our rate. And yeah. I, I will do If you tell me these kinds of things, and I can do them, I will do So would you. So would anybody. So that's why uh, I was all set to talk all about this tax stuff. And then another piece of the world imploded this week. But I do want to talk a little bit more about the implosion of the world. You're on with Heshi, Bumi, and Soya. Anybody? anybody? Because uh, that was the other thing. I can't wait to see the next edition of this guy, this, uh, and I hate to say this, Orthodox Jewish gadfly named Heshi Tischler. Ah, he's an entertainer. He's kind of like me. He has a weekly radio show, Facebook cast, YouTube cast. He's there with this this shrew of a woman. I think it's his wife. And also this friend of his who is, who is, got, is actually a really good radio 
voice guy and is much more to the middle. They're all right wing. They're all pretty far right as, as the Orthodox would be. Although Heshi is to hear, his, his male friends to hear, the wife is screaming to hear. But they, they get on. And the only reason I know about this guy and the world did is that he, he did something stupid to go viral. So he went to like a, a press conference in Brooklyn in the park. And he's just been livid, apparently, about the whole social distancing thing and the shutting down of businesses thing. He is, by the way, a politician in some district in Brooklyn near Borough Park. Well, I think he wants to be. He's not. He's, well, he's run and he's lost. He owns like, a company that gets like violations. Yeah, he does, he does legal stuff. He's, he's not an idiot. Well, kind of an idiot, but he's not an idiot in, in certain things. And he's also one of these people who's bulldog-like of like, you know, this has to be signed, I'll get it signed. And then I'll, oh, it has to be signed by this person and then go to this building? I'll do that. I'll spend my day going from this to this to, to make sure it gets done, right? Not everybody has that sort of, I'm not like that. I'm like, what? Oh, I, I need another signature, I'll put it off till next week. Yeah. He's that kind of person who will be like, why is, this, why is there a padlock on this uh, you know, park? where children go play, because children are not going to get the disease that, you know, at all or that bad. So let's take the padlock off. I didn't break it. I didn't cog it. I just unlocked it. It's not broken. I'm not rioting. I'm not doing this. So when he goes to this press conference, and this was in the New York Post, and, and it went viral, and he's no mask in the middle of the park with all these cameramen and news people are there, and he's, he's shouting at them. And he's saying that the whole distancing thing and, and shutting down things is a lie. And you can see he's this big fat guy. And the spittle, oh, worse than me, oh. there's a fly the, and, and literally one of the news people is, is just holding a mask out to him. Can you just put this on? You can scream. <laughs> but just put this on. He's like, I'm not putting that on. This is America. You know? <laughs> and then they, they go on the air and it's like... Um, you know, they, they feel that New York is completely going to hell. They despise de Blasio. They, they call him de Bozo. Now, a lot of New Yorkers hate de Blasio, but these guys are off the map because he thinks he's been destroying New York and destroying New York businesses for his own political gain and purposes. So that's what they do on, on the air when he's not kind of being funny and kind of being very personable and fast-talking and amusing, which is what makes this show watchable. He's like this this... Orthodox Jewish whiny Limbaugh type, but you know, it, it's just to, to hear him rail against closing things down and shutting things down. How great Donald Trump is, and of course he's going to get because he's political. He'll get the people, the phone callers who come in. Uh, there's one guy. Tell about the honey. Well, that was the thing. There's this one guy who called in said, "Oh, you know, then they were talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg who." They hated because she was left wing. And, and this Orthodox Jewish guy, and, and turns out another guy named Heshi, <laughs> sort of guy, calls on the phone and says, oh, you know, we, we took the stickers of pro-Donald Trump stickers, and we know, we know that the, the BLM is going to take them down. We know the Antifa is going to come and get them and take them down. So we took the stickers and we covered them with a mix of honey and urine. And we put this on, and even Heshi listens to this on the, the broadcast, and he goes, okay, yeah, we're keeping the show G-rated, and kind of gets him gently off the phone. But I'm telling you, that is the guy who showed up at the rally, where Heshi was fulminating and spitting 
and he's the one who mentioned the N word. And then, because, you know, you've got right and you've got right off the edge. But there's also a called just completely unmedicated crazy. Right? <laughs> That's like. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're on with Heshi Bumi and Soya. It is the Dave's Gone By Facebookio, Podcastio, Programio of the Stream Live on this Saturday, October 3rd, 2020. We're calling the episode Me Too in honor of our upcoming guest, Charles Me who is joining us in the neighborhood in a little less than an hour. Yeah, we'll also have our, our, quiz, no? our Dave's Big Dictionary segment, and oh, where the word will be, what, what was it? It was pu something. Oh, plunder. plunder. That was the word. It was pluffer. We thought pluffer. Pluff, and pluffer and pluffer. I don't think pluffer's a word. I, I hope. Actually, it's a beautiful word. It should be. It's like a and our Colorado Limerick of the Damned, where we go to Custer and Greeley Crimes and Old Times, but before all then, it is going to be trivial among us because we're going to be doing our Dave's Gone By Today, Yesterday quiz. So we have one of our contestants has joined us. His name is David Sheward. He is the former president of the Drama Desk, the uh, theater critics organization in New York. He's, it always looks like you're lying back in a hospital bed, but you're sitting comfortably. Oh, yeah. I'm just relaxing. I'm realizing I've got too much sun there. Let me move over. There we go. And we're uh, waiting there. for your co-contestant, Leslie Hovan Blake, to join us as well. So mm -hmm. oh, let me just check. Um, is my phone? My phone's here. I want to make sure she can call in. And, nope, nope. We're waiting for Leslie. So how how is your week, David? How you doing? Okay. Um, Let's see, it's, uh, we start, I teach in uh, a high school in New York. Uh, we started uh, having students come in this week. It's been very strange. Yeah. What is it like, you know? Because I don't deal with kids. I, I work in the school district back end uh, admin area. What is it like in a classroom now? Uh-oh. Uh, you froze. You still there? So weird. It's weird. We have, uh, uh, it's like everyone has a mask uh, and there are no more than six or seven kids and they're sort of spread out. So wait, six or seven? And uh, so far it's been, uh, sorry? Six or, I mean, in the entire classroom, which would probably see about 30 or 40, you have six or seven students at a time. Right. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, do you like that? Is it kind of neat? You can keep order a lot easier, I'll bet. Yes. Yes, yes. So yes, there is that. But it's very strange. It's very strange. But what I don't understand is what's happening with the other 25 kids who oh. aren't there. Are they home watching on TV or, or what? Well, uh, depending on if their parents have uh, elected to be all remote, they are all remote. Wow. And they are either taught by separate teachers who are just doing remote, who themselves are at home. Uh, or another teacher in the building is teaching them all remote, uh, mm -hmm. if they've elected to be all remote. If they are students who have elected to, it's a rotation. The, the, the ones that everyone says we can come in, uh, it's a, it, that, that group is divided into three. So one third of them comes in on one day and right. the other two thirds are at home getting lessons online. We right. post something online, we post the lesson online, and they're supposed to, uh, you know, do it and submit it while the other third is getting it live. 
Wow. So yeah. it's amazing that they don't hire more teachers to do because it's well, need more people. That's the problem. Really? That is the problem in New York is that there aren't enough teachers. Wow. Wow. Who have you, I mean, and is your district not great? It's only been a week that everybody's been back as well, back, back. Any incidences? Does everybody stay healthy? Oh, you're frozen. Hold on. So far, but I, I haven't. In the whole of New York City, uh, there were some cases uh, when we first started, uh, when, when the younger kids came back, I think. Uh, I don't know exactly, but there hasn't been, and there, and there are certain sections in the city where the number of uh, uh, in, uh, cases has gone up. Uh, but I, I have, there hasn't been like a, you know, a big push to close the schools again yet. So we'll see. Well, um, so, no, nah, I, I, I know you have to be, because you're a teacher, a little bit politically correct, but where do you fall on the fence of wishing President Trump well? That's <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Yeah? Of course, of course, I don't, I, I, I do not wish harm on anyone, because sure. I, I fear karma. <laughs> but, well, um, you know, it's interesting. I don't want him to die, to be sick or I don't, and I don't want him to be, you know, you know, I don't want him to pass away or anything like that. Right. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, I think the proper balance is to say, I am saddened that he's sick, but I'm not surprised. And that uh, it, Tucker Carl, uh, I just read this the other day, Tucker Carlson on Fox News was comparing. It's a, it, if you're, um, he was saying, oh, getting, uh, wishing Trump ill or saying he deserved it uh, is like blaming a sexual assault victim for dressing provocatively. And I thought, no, no, not at all, because this is a disease. It's not another person who's committing a criminal act. It's a disease. It's, it's not a, a person with morals or thoughts or anything. It's right. like if you are driving and you refuse to wear a seatbelt because it infringes on your personal liberty. Which yeah, that, that's which a I, yeah. yeah, which I've had relative, a, a relative who went so far as to remove the seatbelts from his car because he didn't think government had the right to tell him what to do. Any, in any event, if you refuse to wear a seatbelt and you get in an accident, that's your fault. Yeah. yeah well, you, I mean, you should be blamed. Out of, out of 100 accidents, probably 95 are improved if you wear the seatbelt. And 5%? The yeah. guy's right. The five percent will fly out of the car, and, and or if it's and cold it. outside and you walk around naked and you get a cold, whose fault is that? Hmm. Yeah, so, a, I, so, I, you know, I should stop walking around naked outside. <laughs> I mean, but it's been so nice out, you know. Yeah. I, well, I, don't I, walk, I well, like you can still get a cold. in the wind. Yeah. All uh, but it's 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 the when this came out, you know, I screened at my phone and. Uh, and the announcement yeah. and all that it's like it's like it's the dictionary definition of irony oh yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. he said oh joe biden you, you you wear masks everywhere you go and at that moment when he said it he had he had coronavirus because he wasn't wearing a mask you think he was healthy i'm gonna let in leslie in case i don't want to lose her so i'm gonna let leslie into the neighborhood okay. but do you think um when do you think he had it do you think he was at the debate oh where did leslie go Leslie, do we lose her? Hey, Rez, we need your, um, we don't see your, your stuff. We've got three participants, but not seeing her. Do you see her? 
I don't see her now. No. But but um oh what was I gonna ask? When do you, you think he, he, he had it? It's it looks like from what I understand, and this is just in what I've seen online and what I've looked at, the uh, the the event where a lot of these people got it was at uh the Rose Garden event where they were introducing Amy Coney Barrett. Right. Or I like to call her Serena Joy from the Handmaid's Tale. Um Ooh, yeah. Uh, they were introducing her at the Rose Garden event, and it was a big event. And hi, hi, Leslie. I now now I see her box. I don't, there she, we go. You see her box, Leslie. You, you guys are going naked. I'll tell you. The touch deadline. Good morning. Wait, wait. We lost your video. Hold on. Here we are. Um, good morning. Good morning. It's like the middle of the night. It doesn't feel like morning at all. <laughs> How you doing, Leslie? I'm okay. You guys have to work, so this is your day off. This isn't even my day off, you know. How do you? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, what? what well, you... it's Saturday. I don't work, work, so I'm at home. Well, you guys have to go to the work in one way or another, right? Yeah, so yeah. Saturday is your day off. Yeah. I was just making it. It's just a. It's it just was... another day for you. So Leslie, it's have you stayed day, healthy? Are you? Yeah, I'm on a 24-hour cycle at the, and a, and a bicycle at the same time. <laughs> so so how, how are you feeling? Are you because I, I check with everybody? How you feeling? I'm right now. Knock knock wood. I'm fine. You know. Well, good. So I asked David and I ask you this question too. Are you gloating? No. Are you grieving? No, I don't. No, 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 no. I think that that's. It, I don't wish anybody to be sick. That's not the same thing as losing yeah, the election. No, right. I, I can't, I can't gloat about this. I, I feel terrible. I, I hope that he survives. I hope that, I mean, I don't want him in office, but that's a totally different <laughs> issue. You know, um, I don't wish anyone to be ill with this. It's a terrible disease. And I don't think it's, I mean, obviously he's getting, he's getting a level of care that no one else in the world is going to get. And, and, and we'll find out whether that helps or not, you know? By the way, a lot of love people are writing to say how much they love the ketchup. They, they, oh, yeah. Yes, I see. Yes, yes, yes. It's the most wonderful thing ever. Yes. Where did it come from? And we have a grill. So, where did it come from? Here, look, look, look. We even have the, the grill that goes with it. It's a blow-up inflatable Heinz grill. <laughs> Did someone give you this, or did you find it on your own? Someone gave it to me. I brought a kitten. I don't have. I I, oh. I brought a kitten today. That's. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. pig. What's the name of pig? Just. No, this is not a. Oh, that's pig. Yeah, that's. Hi, pig. Hi, pig. And what's the name of kitten? Uh it was Ardell Stryker's kitten, so I call it Ardell. You remember Ardell Stryker from the Blue Heron? Oh, oh uh, that the Blue Heron Theater Company, Ardell, she was the artist. When she was ill, I gave her this in the hospital, and her husband told me to take it home, so I did. So this is Ardell. Did she survive? No, 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 she did not. Uh -huh. <laughs> By the way, um, Joyce wants to know, hello, Joyce says hi to both of you. Dave, what is on that the pig's belly? Uh, it says, squeeze me. <laughs> oh, does it make a noise or something? Does it, does it do anything? It just it says, noise? you, it goes... Dave wants one of those. I do, I do. But but Dave wants to put it on the grill, so don't let him have it. <laughs> Actually, they should have a similar button just on Mitch McConnell, just squeezing like I'm a pig. Yes, that that's very funny. 
Thank By you. the way, happy Sukkoth. Is that the correct thing to say? It is. It is. Now, what, what is that? Oh, that's vegetables? Okay. Oh, it's an etrog and a lulav. What kind of Jew are you? I'm a half a Jew. I don't know all of it. <laughs> oh, and it comes <laughs> off? It does. See, this is, you, it's a lemon-like citrus fruit yeah. that you smell and do stuff to on Sukkot. This goes actually into the rabbi's ass. And then it stays oh, there throughout the service. And then, I know. It's you know, a lot, David. I know. I was thinking that, but I wasn't going to say anything. You know? <laughs> well, there, there it is. They do prayers over this, and they stay in a, this is our little oh. sukkah home. Oh, by the way, uh, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. Doesn't he look like Irene Ryan on the Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you know the funny part? Jed, you, you ain't going to pass that, that legislation, Jed. <laughs> David should get two points for that, definitely. So we have now, to get We've the- been to Louisville, David. We've been to Louisville. We know exactly where he, where this man comes from. And it ain't yeah, but we were in a, in a situation of the Louisville Theater Complex where everybody's liberal and cool and normal. Well, the city, the city of Louisville is, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah. in, in most southern states, the big metropolitan cities are, are more blue, and uh, they're different from the rest of the state. But yeah. even so, even though it's sort of like, quote, the big, because it has the racetrack and it has the, the theater, it's, it's, a, it's a little bitty town, you know, when you're not. Yeah. When you're not in New York, you're not anywhere. I'm sorry. I'll say it. I'll say it out loud. You know? I did like it. It was a nice city. Yeah, no, I, I have a It was pleasant. Um, they were nice to us. I had nothing, you know. And it, 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 interestingly, that of all things, Louisville, um, I, I just want to give a promo here, that our guest coming up at 11 is uh, the playwright Charles Mee, who yes. vaulted to another level in American theater because his play Big Love was done at ATL in Louisville. Well, we saw it. Didn't you I, see it, Dave? David, I saw it signature. Oh, oh I, no, I saw the original. I interviewed Dave, I interviewed Chuck down at uh, at Louisville. Oh, he ooh, won't Chuck? remember. Yeah, yeah his, his nickname is Chuck. He won't remember, but I did. Well, because they they were on that. Yeah. In, in Louisville, when you when you're interviewing people, they're on that thing like movie stars on a press conference. You know, they sit in a room and you come in, and then another writer comes in, and then another writer comes in. Yeah. So I don't think anybody remembers anybody. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, but didn't we you have, say last week that you were neighbors, or was we that? We were neighbors. I, 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 I got married. I, my parents bought a house, and I, I, I lived there for a year or two, and then I left. So right. I didn't really get to know him. They knew him very well. He knew oh. my mom very well. Got it. Well, I think anyway. his wife. I think his wife and my mom didn't get along, but you know that's another story. Right. That was his ex-wife, anyway. So. <laughs> Such complications. Stories, and, stories we can tell, right? We don't have that much time for stories because we've got a half an hour to do the today's okay. quiz before. Okay. Charles okay. So okay. Look, thing we're gonna do, like is that because is that because not much happened on October third, or just because you need to get moving? It's a pretty happening day, and I want to allow some time for conversation during the because sometimes you guys get into it, and there's there's some fun to be. I hope there's some fun to be had. So okay. so when we do have like um our usual. 10 questions plus a tiebreaker. Okay. Questions are two points apiece. Uh, And as a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to do the roll a die thing. Let me make sure I can do this properly with it. Oh, I did the wrong. uh, Well, I always do the same number. I always always take six. So you can, David, you can take whatever you want. I don't even remember what I said last week, so. You were below. I just, I don't remember what it was, but it was under six. Uh, So do you want me to pick a number? Yeah, please do, Dan. One to 10. 
I'll pick three. Well, one, no, no, one to six. I think that's what you picked last time, as a matter of fact. So I will pick three. You could just write our numbers down, David. We're pretty, Dave, we're three pretty. Six, three from David and six from Leslie. What I'm that's doing, it. Folks, is, is on the website there. I am rolling a virtual die. I don't believe any of that, do you, David? I really don't believe there's anything. And I, I can share screen. And, and, and Arnell no, doesn't believe, believe either. I so, believe. Yeah. Well, she's so soft. Oh, yeah. Who won the roll? The die came up number three. Yeah. Oh, well, he got first roll last time too. Yay. Okay. That I think the fix is in. You get to decide. You have the option of whether you want to go first or second. I will go first. So David will go first with the first question. So this is that's as random as we can make it to, to make this fair. Okay. So to tell the folks at home how this works is we're going to read the question. Each one gets a chance to answer. The questions are worth two points. They get it wrong. It's worth zero points, but the other contestant gets a chance to steal and take those two points. So are you guys ready? Yes. Ready. And all of these questions involve events in world history that happened on October 3rd, because this is October 3rd. The year 1712. Okay. The Duke of Montrose sent out an arrest warrant today for this Scottish cattle herder and rustler and extortioner who nonetheless became a folk hero when he was alive and immortalized later on when he was fictionalized by Sir Walter Scott. Who was this outlaw? And by the way, wait a moment for answering questions because I want to give people at home the chance to answer. This question is for David and I will read it again, but I'm also going to go get a pen. I'll be right there. Okay. I mean, I think that, I mean, it's not, I think I know, I think I know, I'm not going to say, but I think I know. Um, I'll read it again. I'll read okay. the question again. The question is, well, the year, 1712. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to check because one of our gallery people. I think I know. <laughs> it gives the, the ketchup bottle quite a, quite a, a, a presence when you're not there. Yes. We have, uh, aren't they? We have one answer um, from the gallery. I'm not going to say whether it's oh, true or not. But that's it's kept away from me. We, no fair if the pig is, is giving you the answers. No, no. that's uh, oh, the, cat, the kitten's giving me mine. So okay. it's uh, all right. And Kissy, she's giving me. Go ahead. The Duke of Montrose sent an arrest warrant out today, October uh -huh. 3rd, 1712, for this Scottish cattle herder and rustler and extortioner who nonetheless became a folk hero when he was alive and immortalized when he was later fictionalized by Sir Walter Scott. Who was this outlaw? Don't say it yet, because we also have another. Oh. Um, I have two thoughts, David, actually. Actually, we, we did get from um, the people watching at home, Lin-Manuel Noriega. That is not the correct answer. No, it's Lin-Manuel Mac Noriega. <laughs> All right, can I say what I think, my guess? <laughs> yes. I'm going to do the countdown. Hold on. Okay. And right. the answer from David is? Uh, I think it's Ivanhoe. Is the answer Ivanhoe? No, it's uh -huh. Ivanhoe. Leslie, you get a chance to steal for two points. Okay, because it's 1712, I'm confused. Because I have two names in mind. I'm going to say them both. And one of the, none of them may be right. I'm thinking of either Robert the Bruce or Henry Wallace. But Henry Wallace was that movie by Mel Gibson about um, whatever that guy who painted his face half blue. Braveheart. But both of them are earlier. 
Um, Robert the Bruce, uh, the, 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 the year is what's killing me, 1712. Yeah. And then the only other person I can come up with is Bonnie Prince Charlie, but Bonnie Prince Charlie was a royal, so he wasn't a cattle herder. Um, I'm going to go with Henry Wallace. I think it was much earlier, but I'm going to go with Henry Wallace. And the answer is neither. The okay. answer is a Scottish fella by the name of Rob Roy McGregor. Oh, oh I could have seen that. Of course. Rob Roy. I saw the Disney movie of Rob Roy. There you go. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What's the score? The score is zero zero. Zero so, zero. I thought it was Rob Roy. I, I wasn't sure. Okay. All right. Go ahead. And did you know that the, the Rob Roy drink was invented in 1894 by a bartender at the Waldorf Astoria because mm -hmm. it was to coincide with an operetta that was being done in New York about oh, On him. Rob Roy? On Rob Roy. So he's a really? well-known character. So okay. do, do either of you remember it was a live-action movie, the Rob Roy movie that... Uh... With Liam Neeson? No, very no, way, way back in, in the forties or fifties, somewhere around there. Oh. Um, with a very handsome um British actor who may very well have been Scots himself, I don't know, playing oh. Rob Roy. I can see his face, but I can't think of his name. Did he have red hair? Stang version. No. <laughs> no, he didn't. Oh. All right. So we do have a live action film. So All right. Then, but, okay. but now Leslie gets the second question in our Today, Yesterday. There question. may have been a, re a, redo, a remake. It might, Liam Neeson might have played him in a remake, David. I don't That's know. That's right. I would have to wiki or Google him to find him. Yes. Go ahead. Well, we're, we're not allowed to do that while we're on yeah. the air. So let's yeah. go. I just don't have time. I can't. Yeah. yeah. Go I just don't have Google for the answer. Well, you have somebody over there to your left who could. Um, that's, your left, that's your right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's your right. I'm afraid Joyce is banned from the internet for reasons that we can't. Okay. Oh, okay. But Lin-Manuel Noriega knows why. Right? <laughs> okay, go ahead. The year, Leslie. Leslie gets this next question. 1849. This 40-year-old writer was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore in great distress and in need of immediate assistance. He would die four days later. Don't do it yet. I think you know the answer, but name him. So we'll just hang on to that. Let me see if there's any response. Yeah, we're going to see if we get any response from the gallery. Who can, who can see if they know the answer to this question. 1849 was the year. This 40-year-old writer was... I just said I agree with Leslie. I don't know what that means. Somebody agreed with you about something, Leslie. <laughs> this 40-year-old writer was found delirious <laughs> on the streets of Baltimore. And who hasn't been delirious on the streets of Baltimore? In great, and this is a quote, in great distress and in need of immediate assistance. He would die four days later. Give it another moment to see if any of our, our viewers... No, we're not getting... No, Davidian... It's uh, so rare that anybody agrees with me about anything these days, David. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm yes, Bill, is Bill with us? Is he, uh, uh, He's quiet today, and Glenn is not. Well, Leslie, I'm going to give you the, the countdown. And who was this writer? Well, the giveaway is Baltimore, because a friend of mine just went to a house of his. It's, it's Edgar Allan Poe. It is indeed Edgar Allan Poe. Two points for Leslie. David, do you, do you guys know Jose Solis, who's on the board? I know. Uh, I'm acquainted. He's, he's a critic. He's a he's a fellow critic. Anyway, he took a he he'd been tied to his home for six months, and he gave himself a three day weekend in Baltimore. One of the things he did was to go to the Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, 
So oh. we were just talking about it. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 in Baltimore, it's like twelve days. So it's, it's just yeah. oh no, to get away from your home when you haven't been anywhere for six months, anywhere. Well, I, anywhere. I like Baltimore. We I remember just, Jersey. You know, the Rusty Scupper. Oh, Have yeah. you ever been to the Rusty yeah. Scupper in Inner Harbor? Oh my goodness. Where is Inner Harbor? It's this area. It's the an area where it's like it's like uh, South Street Seaport in yeah. New York. But where? Oh, in Baltimore. Oh, I didn't know. I've been <laughs> to Baltimore. It looks like a barge, and it's called the Rusty Scupper. And you exactly. go out on the water to eat. You know, it's a, a seafood restaurant. I was there once, and I went to a very upscale. No, not to the Scupper. I, I, I was in Baltimore exactly once to visit a friend. We went to a very upscale restaurant, and that was the end of that. I think Blanche I have fabulous, yeah, I have fabulous uh, uh, Chesapeake Bay crabs or whatever they're famous for, something like that. I remember when you got crabs, Leslie. It was, uh, it was <laughs> for days. I, I promised you I wouldn't tell, David. You promised. You promised. He's, I think he's Blanche no and good Dorothy. at keeping secrets. I think Blanche and Dorothy were there. Or was that the Rusty Anchor? Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Huh. We're doing the Today Yesterday quiz on Dave's Gone By. With, I don't think I even introduced you guys properly, but David Seward is there and he writes for, tell us again, it's something circle. I write for theaterlife.com and culturalweekly.com. Theaterlife.com, culturalweekly.com, and Leslie is co-hosting the podcast with our mutual friend Charlie Gross called Cricket Circle. Thank you for remembering. YouTube. Or it's it's on MNN. We just had our first actual live broadcast of a stream show, and then it's up on YouTube permanently under Cir Critic Circle on YouTube. I sent it to both of you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you didn't watch it, yeah, but it was I, an I interview. With, I mean, I, I saw the email, and I will look at it. No, but it's an interview with James Nicola, who has a lot of good things to say. We're basically trying to talk to theater makers. Um, across the country about what they think the future of theater is. Well, you had James Which I think Nicola. is an important, pardon? You had James Nicola. Um, James C. Uh, Nicola from New York Theater Workshop, right. Is it your first guest on, on the yes. program. Can I ask you, Leslie, did you also direct Charlie's uh, Fringe show? Because he uh, put that on YouTube. That's an interesting question, David. Um, <laughs> there actually is a streaming union contract, which Charlie cannot afford. Oh. Ergo, I watched and helped a little bit but i did not have the director of record you can't have I got because because there is no director of record uh, Char and, and trust me charlie had this show before oh so yeah, no, it's, yeah. It's, it's 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 a it's a it's a newly refurbished version of the show he had before and i won't name so, it right now so that you're not connected with I mean, but thank I'll you for it. asking yeah, okay. <laughs> and no. getting me into trouble with my with that <laughs> choice what did you say about filters what you can't watch any Leslie stuff because you have filters. Yeah, you can't watch. What? Charlie's show is still up through October 10th, it says, but I wasn't able to get there yesterday, so I don't know. Well, he put it on YouTube. In other words, it's not just at the festival. He took, apparently. He took the, the show that he actually did. Okay, then. Yeah, then, then. Okay. Anyway, let's move on with today, yesterday, our okay. week quiz of things that happened on October 3rd. So Leslie is winning right now, two nothing, but David okay. Schubert gets the next question. Okay. We move to the year 1913. Uh -huh. Woodrow Wilson signed into law the Revenue Act. The Revenue Act. Okay. Among other things, it established a tax of 1% on people making at least how much Per year, it's a multiple choice. Oh my God! Okay, <laughs> the revenue tax was on people who are making at least this much money per year. 
Was it $100, one hundred dollars, one thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, six thousand dollars? Wait, five choices. Four. There's four. four. Um, so, hold on, I'll, I'll read them again. Read them again. Woodrow Wilson's revenue tax enacted right. in 1913, among right. other things, it established a tax of one percent on people making at least how much per year? Was it a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, three thousand bucks, or six thousand smackaroos? Well, I'm just going to guess a uh, thousand bucks because it sounds like at that time, a hundred bucks, even even that for a whole year, even in 1913, that's really low. Right. Uh, so I'm going to guess a thousand bucks, which probably in 1913 would have been the average middle class, uh, you know, uh, wage. Okay. That's, do we have any answers from the gallery? No, I, I just, but somebody said interesting backdrop. I think it's the ketchup. Oh, and of course they're talking about the, the ketchup backdrop. And the answer is not a thousand dollars. Wait a second, $3,000. Well, we have an answer from the gallery. Yes. What is Leslie's answer? Because Leslie gets to steal. So it's 100, 1,000, 3,000, or $6,000. I guessed 1,000, and that's not it. We know it's not 1,000. Is this where the phrase well, one percenters came from? Was that 1% tax? or? Yes, it's a 1% tax on but people. Is that where the phrase the one percenters came from? Because that's where Trump and all those people are now in the 1%. I think that's more modern, more contemporary. No, no, I understand that, but I wondered if, okay, never mind. Yeah, I did. Um, okay, so it's a choice between three and six. Or a hundred, it may be a hundred. No, but, but it's interesting because those are our numbers. You have three and I have six, so I'm gonna stick with Oh, interesting. I seriously doubt that they, anybody could make 6,000. I agree with David that, that you know things were really tough. Well, wait a minute now. 1913 was before the First World War. There hadn't been a depression. It was after the Spanish-American War, so people might have been doing okay. I'll go with 6,000. And Leslie's answer is six. We have an answer Bill from the gallery three. from Bill, Bill is saying three, and the answer is... Well, back then, they were trying to not soak the middle class. They wanted to get just the people who were really doing very well. So you had to be making at least three thousand dollars in order and amazingly enough three percent of the population was affected by this tax um, so 97 percent weren't even taxed at all this was a tax the well-off kind of a thing so well well done bill good job did leslie guess did leslie say six no i said six, six. Yeah. Okay, so okay it was actually three which was okay. a reasonable amount of you know a, a okay. salary back in in 1913. What are all these history questions? I mean, last week it was like, who starred on Gilligan's Island? Well, we'll get, the more modern questions tend to be more media oriented, okay. but you're not going to get a lot of television questions from 1913. So he was at home and watched every television show there ever was to Brad. <laughs> All right, so now we go back to Leslie, because Leslie right. is the initial question. Okay. Uh, next question in the quiz 1941 is the year. Okay. Speaking of media, premiering today in New York is The Maltese Falcon, a classic movie noir starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor. For one point, who directed it? And for the other, who wrote the novel on which the movie was based? All right, don't say it, don't say it. I think mean, Leslie's nodding. She's, uh, me, and, and I think David knows it too. 
I think even uh, Kitten might know this one, but we're going to give the, the people at home a chance to ruminate on it and remind you that it's 10.30 Eastern time in the neighborhood. You're watching the Dave's Gone By, Facebookio, Podcastio, Programio of the stream with me, Dave Lefkowitz, my wonderful wife, Joyce. It is October 3rd, 2020. So we are asking questions in our Today Yesterday quiz that all happened in history. They want to hear the question again. So on October 3rd, 1940, <coughs> premiering in New York today, was the Maltese Falcon, or Falcon, depending on your pronunciation, classic movie noir starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor. For one point, who directed the movie? And for the other, who wrote the novel on which the movie was based? I'm going to give the countdown, but do we have any answers from the gallery yet? Struggling. Even Bill? Yeah, well, but yeah, you know, he's good and he got one out of two. Yeah, let's just give another moment for the folks at home to see if they can grab this. People are joining. I have a whole list of people. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll read names in a bit. Uh, okay, so don't, don't, don't can say that. Can you read it? I'm not sure about the director. I know, who the, I know who the original novel was, but I'm not sure about the director. We have an answer from the gang that is partially correct. So we're going to give Leslie the chance to get both points on this. Okay, the book is by Dashiell Hammett. That's... That's the one with Sam, that was Sam Spade. But now I'm confused about whether Mankiewicz was the director or the producer on that. And I'm embarrassed because as a director, I should know every director in the whole world, but I don't. And I can't think of another director who might've, I can't. Can you Google this? Cause I forgot to write I'm that. gonna have to go with Mankiewicz, which is probably wrong. What happened? He disappeared. I turned my head. And oh, yeah, no, I had to, cause I realized I forgot to write down the answer on this. Now, can I steal? But you well, can't. Wait, you have to wait. I'm wrong. So obviously, yes, yes. Okay. okay. I'll wait. I know this answer. You're going to say it. And go, oh. And the answer from David for the other one is, is? Well, if, if now, are you saying whether or not she's right or wrong, and then I get to steal, or, or how does that work? Well, no, she's wrong. She's wrong. She was right about Dash oh. Hammett, is the oh. author. Dash Hammett. Dash Hammett is correct. But the director was not Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Okay. Charles L. Mead, for that matter, okay. who was the director of John, the Maltese Falcon? John Houston. Oh, okay, yes, yes, of course. Of course. And the answer. Did not come to me. Of course it was, right. He also okay. wrote the screenplay. Well, yes, David, David Short. So you each got a point apiece. Well done, okay. both of you. Okay, on the so I've got one. <laughs> We're going to go a little bit faster because I want to get through these questions. And sure. we've got Charles okay, no. in like 10 okay. minutes. So. Sure. 1950 is the year, and this question goes directly to David Schubert. Right? Okay. 1950, October 3rd. You wanted media questions? Here's a media question. Okay. After years of success as a radio show, Beulah was adapted into a TV situation comedy. Okay. Doing Tonight on the ABC network. Mm -hmm. This groundbreaking but still stereotypical show was the first TV series to star an African-American actress. One who was also appearing on Broadway at the time. Can you name her? Don't, if okay. you... Okay. Now, uh, I, know that, I know that Beulah was played by a white man on the radio doing an imitation voice. Very good, yeah. Uh, when they went to television... yes. When they went to television, it had to be a black woman. And I know that at one time or another, Beulah was played by either Hattie McDaniel, Ethel Waters, or Louise Beavers. So I just have to figure out which one of the three was playing it at the time. 
and I, it, I'm, I'm pretty sure Hattie McDaniel did it first. I don't know if she was on Broadway or not, because I don't remember her being in a Broadway show at that time. Ethel Waters, in all probability, is the answer because she, was, she did a lot of Broadway and it could have been member of the wedding. Um, so I'm gonna say Ethel Waters. Is that your final answer, David Sheward? It's either Ethel Waters or Hattie McDaniel. Um, uh, I, uh, it's either Ethel Waters or Hattie McDaniel. And I know Hattie McDaniel played it to begin with. Uh, Hattie McD I'll, my final answer would be Hattie McDaniel. Final answer from David Schroeder is Hattie McDaniel. Do we have anybody from um, the, the web chiming in? Well, David Sheward. No, that was oh. not the answer. Leslie, okay. do you want to? I gave you the answer. No, I, I knew. I knew all three of them. Also, I've been working on a project, so I, that's that has to do with the, that particular oh. era in television. So I know about that. But I'm. But I agree with you because ultimately Louise Beavers played the role. But I believe it started out as Ethel Waters. And I don't believe that Louise Beavers ever did any Broadway at all. So I will go with the Ethel Waters. I, I think 50 is too early for Raisin in the Sun. So you said member of the wedding. That sounds right. Yeah. So you're going with, yeah. With, with, yeah there's actually a line in my, my play that I wrote when I was back in college called The Triple Wedding that said, he leadeth me beside the Ethel Waters, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And... Even then, huh, David? I was, I was crazy back then. But Leslie, yeah, you see, you... Uh -huh. When you think it out loud, David, you kind of gave Leslie the steal, but she kind of knew it anyway. Yeah, well, I knew, I knew Hattie McDaniel played it at one point. But. Well, what happened was Ethel Waters, who was in Member of the Wedding at the time, mm -hmm. she was doing the show. She did it on TV for a little bit. Hattie McDaniels then took over for oh. Ethel Waters on TV. And then Louise Beavers, not going to make any jokes there, she finally took the role oh. later on. So good that you didn't make any jokes there. I'm looking out my window and there's a sailboat. <clears throat> I'm on the, I'm on the river. I'm, I'm doing terribly today. I'm just, I'm just out, out overthinking myself. Oh well. And by the way, as great as Hattie McDaniel was and Ethel Waters were, they, they couldn't lick beavers. But you know, the year. Actually, I have a book <laughs> about that. You have a book, Leslie. Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much. Okay. Circle. <laughs> Who gets this next question initially? It's Leslie. I do. Leslie. Leslie gets the... Uh, I think Lynn <laughs> does not get the question. All right, here we go. So wait, how are we doing? Are you keeping score or am I keeping score? I, I have, have one. I know that. I'm yeah, just you have one. Leslie has five, I think. Um, I have five? She stole. Yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to well, that's right. I stole, David. Oh, oh okay. I just got one. Here we go. Well, this makes up for last week, David. I just yeah. felt, I yeah. felt like shit all week, David. Just so you know. <laughs> somebody, somebody Such needs to get more lesson. free time. You. you know, somebody has too much free time. 1955 yes. is the year, Leslie. Tell them we can do a virtual visit with a good therapist. I mean, we can do a virtual visit with a good therapist for you, Leslie. Here we go. 1955 <laughs> is yeah, the year. Okay. Hosted I, by Jimmy I, Dodd. What? One nine five five. Yes, 1955, 1955. Hosted by Jimmy Dodd on ABC. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E debuted today. The cast members for the first four years included Annette Funicello, of course, and several other youngsters. Which of these was not an original Mouseketeer? Was, and it's, it's a, um, a multiple choice. Thank God. 
Doreen, Cubby, Bobby, Tammy. I'll read the question again. So on this date, the Mickey Mouse Club debuted on ABC TV. The cast members for the first, because it ran many, many years, but for the fir that first original cast, who all stayed at least four years, including Annette Vernicello and several other youngsters. Which of them was not one of those youngsters? Doreen, Cubby, Bobby, Tammy. We'll give it a moment. And let's see, do we have any, any mouse? Because we actually lost a musketeer this week. One of the, the original mousies died this week and after I wrote the question. All so. the news, you know. Was it, it one of those? Was it one yeah. of the people? Was that? Huh, who died? I don't remember. It was uh, something oh. like um, Dory. That's sad. A musketeer died. You don't remember the name. Oh, I, I, I wasn't watching back in 1955. Oh, yeah, there was so much news this week, you know. Say what? There was so much news this week. It just. How is school going? How are you with school? We talked about that before you came on. It's, it's yeah. weird. We, it's have time. we got like five minutes to finish up the quiz. So okay. let's leave. Okay. Let's do the question. Uh, I'll read it again. Was it Doreen, Cubby, Bobby, Tammy, who was not a Mouseketeer? I would say Tammy was not a Mouseketeer in the first four years. Is that your final answer? Well, I don't like the way you said that, but uh, I don't have it. Um, Doreen, Bobby, Cubby, Tammy. I Tammy. don't remember a Tammy in that lineup. I, I just don't. And... You shouldn't. There wasn't a Tammy. Well done, Leslie. Well done, Leslie. So was I supposed to change because you said, are you sure about that? That's not the Biggie instead? <laughs> you ever watched Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Is, is that true? Are you sure? I love Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I love that. I don't watch it. I listen to it. But The original gang was Doreen Tracy. Uh, well, oh, I'm sorry. Of the people that I mentioned, it was the last names were Doreen Tracy, Cubby O'Brien, and Bobby Burgess, just so you know. Huh. Um, all right, the year, David, was okay. 1957. Okay. Ending today, ending today, ending was a today. trial that found this short literary work had, quote, redeeming social importance and was not obscene. Can you name this <laughs> iconic work, which was excerpted in the chamber opera Hydrogen Jukebox? Okay, so well, don't say it. And, and you can talk it out, but. But watch out whatever clues they give to Leslie. So hold okay. on one sec. Right, well, I, it's okay. I got, I got to think it through, and, and it'll also show my knowledge. Uh, 1957 is the year. Uh, mm -hmm. Ending today was a trial that found this short literary work had, quote, oh, sure. redeeming social importance and was not obscene. Shit. Can you name the work which was excerpted in the chamber opera, Hydrogen Jukebox. Okay, that was a vital clue when you said short, because I was gonna say Ulysses, which is not short. And it's not Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is not short. So it's gotta be Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Hmm. Is that your final yeah. answer though? Yes. It is the final answer. It is the correct answer. It was yeah, Allen Ginsberg's Howl. Well done to David. So David- you Notice how he didn't say poem, he said literary work, sure. Yeah, I didn't want to give that because I would have said poem, it would have been too easy. But we actually have- Jukebox or atomic jukebox? 
was the was the opera called the Tom- Hydrogen Jukebox by uh, Philip Glass, I think. Yeah. It was Philip Glass, okay. Yeah, and I don't he excerpted really back to 1957. You may be thinking of Doctor Atomic, the other. That's what I'm thinking of. Thank you. It's a different Dr. opera. Yeah. I think we have time. We're not going to do the whole quiz because we actually have our, our guest waiting in the waiting room already. We'll do one more, okay. one or two more one questions. More. Will you please say hello for yeah. me, just in case he remembers? Um, let me. Well, I will. I will. Um, how do I even talk to him without admitting him? Gotta just type in the, you can type in the waiting room, you can chat. Um, you can well, you know, he, he knows he's coming out of the quarter two, I'm just gonna do it. So 1961 is the year, and this question now goes to Leslie. 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 1961, opening tonight at, ha ha, Broadway's Broadhurst Theater. This is why I randomized the opening of the show, because you never know who's gonna get these kinds of questions. Is a new musical featuring such songs as, Why Do the Wrong People Travel? Useless, useful phrases, and the customer is always right. Sing that song, just so you know. <laughs> that was that was one of my audition pieces. Was why do the wrong people travel? You, you have a you just have a story for everything of why you know stuff. I sang it in the key of Elaine Strick. Yes, that was what I. They might answer the question, Leslie, because we got. I'm gonna... Sail away. It was called Sail Away. No coward. No coward. Sail away is the correct answer. You have nine points now. Go. Time for one more question for David. I'm afraid okay. you're not going to win this quiz, but we can give you one more okay. question. And, and it's another theater question. So here okay. you go. 1963 was the year opening tonight at Broadway's Schubert Theater is a new musical about a department store Santa convincing a little girl that he's real. Okay. Name the show. And I don't think you even need it. Do you want the hint? I can give you a hint, but I don't think you need it. It's Here's Love. Here's Love, the Meredith Wilson Musical of Miracle on 34th Street. Was it a flop, though, is my question? Was it a flop? Yes, that's what I thought. Okay. It ran a few months, but it wasn't a big, you know, it wasn't like Music Man or, or his other. Anyway, it's, it's time enough. I'm not going to get through all the questions, unfortunately, but we made it through nine of them. And the winner is Leslie O'Brien Blake with nine. I'm a very good winner. I don't lord it over anything. I think I got five. Yeah. You, she was nine to five. She beat you in the quiz today, but maybe next week you guys can come back and play. Sure. Yes, sure. next Saturday. We've been talking with and having fun with um, David Sheward and Leslie Hope and Blake. David Sheward writes for theaterlife.com. And what's the other one? Culturalweekly.com. Culturalweekly.com. And you have David, David Desk. What was the, uh, your blog? My blog is The David Desk. The David I just wrote a blog about the films of 1971. The film. Oh, oh, that's an interesting year to choose. Yeah. And Leslie Hoban Blake, of course, she is, what is she doing? Oh, she's on that podcast with Charlie called Critics Circle that you can find on YouTube. Yeah? Yep. Okay. Guys, I'm, I don't mean to rush you out of here, but I want to get to it. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us. I love it. Bye. And happy circus to all of you. Bye-bye now. And I'm going to remove you guys. Bye-bye. Okay. And David, you're leaving. Bye. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a guest coming into the neighborhood who's going to be talking to the one, the only, the Jewish rabbi, Saul Solomon. He's coming right at us. What? What? What's the matter here? Wait, wait. Oh, I've got to do the interview. Oh, my God. Hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm beautifying myself on the circus. Oh, look, it's like a poncho. I love it. Shalom, damn it. 
Hello, everybody. This is your old pal, Rabbi Saul Solomon, founder and spiritual leader of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. And I am so thrilled and so delighted to be talking with our very special guest. He is a playwright and also a writer of fiction and also a builder of very strange Legos in the back of what is that behind you there? Are those CDs? Do you still listen to CDs? Look at those, by the way, that's Charles L. Me we're talking to. Shalom! How are you? Hi, good to see you. Good to see you too. So what is that, are those, what are those towers behind you there? You'll have to ask my wife. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, bring her in, but I think it looks like those old CD towers in a weird sort of a way. But let me give you a proper yeah. introduction. Charles L. Me, veteran playwright, novelist, nonfiction writer, ranging from American political history to such plays and dramatic works as Vienna Lusthaus, always like a little lust in there, The Big Love, Bob Rauschenberg, America. He's done a bunch of uh, work with Ongard Arts, that company as well. He is a two-time winner of the Obie Award, the Village Voice Off and Off Broadway Award, a Penn Award winner. So, hey, he has one of these. This is exciting. And the uh, winner of the Academy, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Lifetime Achievement Award. Won't you please welcome to the neighborhood on this circus holiday, Charles L. Me. Shalom to you. Hey, thank you. And to you. Thank you. So how are you? Uh, the question we ask everybody, you're feeling okay? You, you've come through this whole time on pandemic? Well, you know, it's almost like a normal playwright's life for me. I sit at my desk, I look out the window. Uh, so I'm fine. Well, th- thank God. This is wonderful. This is good. Now, and, and, and I hope you don't mind me asking and jumping into this question already in terms of health and things. But, but when you were much, much younger, you, it was a polio that you, you suffered. So it's rather interesting that so many of your plays are so physical and so visceral. Was that um, an intentional kind of reaction to having to deal with such physical issues, both in, in early life and later life as well? I don't think it was intentional. I think it just happened. I mean, when I was a kid, I played football. I, I played football, basketball, track, all those things. And then I got polio when I was 14. And uh, for quite a while, uh, I was lying in bed, and all I could move were these three fingers. Um, that's, a, that's enough to make a girl happy, by the way, just so you know. But, all right, and, and, but then you, you did physical rehab, and you got better and better and better? Yeah. Uh, but then I spent most of my life on uh, crutches, and uh, now I'm in a wheelchair. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I love to have a vicarious physical life, which I do in the theater. And, um, and so when I go to see my own plays, I get to see all these actors doing stuff on stage that uh, is still there in my head. And there's no jealousy, but there's no feeling of like, oh my God, when I was playing football, I could have done X, Y, no. You just feel like, hey, I can watch them do it and feel almost in a way like I'm doing it. And, and I can, right. I'm in a way, telling them what to do in the yeah. script. Yeah. They're in an extension, too, if you will. I yeah. am doing it. I did it in my head, didn't I? By the way, may I, uh, may I call you Chuck? Because I know your friends call you Chuck, but I don't want to impede or what's the word? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so Chuck, if, if I may also say, one thing I didn't know is, is that because you came to, let's say, the fore of a more 
uh, a greater consciousness in the theater world, kind of later in life with The Big Love and, and Actors Theater of Louisville, didn't realize that you had started really back in the early days of the off-off-Broadway movement of La Mama and of Theater for the New City and of Cafe Chino. So do you have any anecdotes or stories of what it was like to be doing theater back then when people were just kind of throwing up anything at the wall and seeing what stuck? Yeah, oh, I loved that. That was wonderful. So what's, what's a memory of, of like doing a show in the early, early days of Ellen Stewart's La Mama, let's say, or, or you know, Crystal Fields' New City, something like that? Well, in the early, early days, uh, I did uh, three short plays, uh, and they were put on them called Three by Me. And uh, the uh, co-producers were Andre Gregory uh, and um, Michael Kahn, who I don't know if Michael is still the head of the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. Um, but anyway, and a couple of the actors were uh, Roscoe Lee Brown, who was... Uh, yes. And uh, James Earl Jones. Good Lord. This was and, off, off, or was this off-Broadway? This was what? Off, 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 off-Broadway. Do you was, have any memories of Roscoe Lee Brown and James Earl Jones? Any funny stories of, of them in rehearsal or telling jokes or, or telling their it, memories? It, it was wonderful. But I mean, you know, it was like they were young actors just starting out. Uh, I mean, this was one of the first plays Roscoe, uh, not, not Roscoe Lee Brown, but uh, James Earl Jones, it was one of his first plays. So this was before the Great White Hope even. This would have been mid-60s, oh, yeah. like, wow. Like 1961, I think it was. How old, uh, none of my business, but how old, are you almost 80? Oh, no, I'm way beyond 80, I'm 82. Mazel, McGlick, and, and looking wonderful, by the way. You look fantastic and healthy <laughs> and, and, and terrific. So. What made you want to go and get into part of that scene, along with uh, you know the John Wares and the, the, the Sam Shepherds and the Maria Irena Fornezes? How, how did you get sucked into that world? Well, uh, you know, I just, I think I started writing plays when I was about four years old. Coming home from the playground, I would think, oh, gee, when he said that, I should have said this. Oh, and then he would have said that. Oh, so I would have said this. So I think I was writing plays uh, before I knew how to put a pencil on paper. Um, and then when I was in college, uh, one of the people who was in college with me was a guy named Steve Aaron. And he came to New York and he connected with these guys who were just starting this off, 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 off Broadway theater. So he brought me into it. Uh, and this is how it's, the, I, I almost have never done anything except work with friends. I almost never give a play to a stranger. And it, it all, it's because of that experience. Yeah, but that's not true. This is not, you, uh, among uh, many other playwrights, are very well known from like a decade ago of saying, you know what, I'm going to put my plays on the internet, the, the scripts of them anyway. And, any stranger can have that. I forget the, the equity rules or, or the drama guild. You want to play, just tell me you're doing it. You know, or, or read it, enjoy it. What was the, the mindset behind that when other playwrights were so worried, you know, for about people stealing, quote unquote, their work and just doing it without royalties? Well, that, that happened because a friend of mine named Robert Woodruff, director, uh, got a call one day from 
uh, Gordon Davidson, who was running the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And uh, Gordon Davidson told uh, Woodruff that suddenly he was expecting to do a workshop and then those guys weren't able to do it. Would he like to do a workshop? And he said, sure. So he phoned me because we were friends. And he said, so I had this chance to do a workshop. What have you got? I said, I don't have anything. He said, well, we should do something because here's a chance. I said, well, then maybe we should just uh, start with something that exists and then we'll, we'll play with it. He said, okay, like what? And this was a time of a war in Iraq. And I said, oh, okay, how about we take a Greek play uh, with some war going on like Orestes? He said, okay. So I said, so you take Orestes and start doing it with the actors out in Los Angeles. I can't go, I have to stay here in New York at my job, but I'll fax some pages to you that you can stick into it. So he said, okay. So he went out and he started doing this workshop and I started faxing stuff to him that you could stick into it. That was what? Well, stuff from today. What? From the newspaper, from TV shows, from stuff about Iraq, from soldiers coming home, from soldiers saying how it was. And uh, so he did all that. And then he brought back this pile of paper um, and handed it to me and he said, here it is. And I thought, oh, what am I, this is just a pile of junk. What am I gonna do with this? I thought, oh, okay. Take out the original play and then just put together the pages you have left that you were gonna put in between the other scenes. So that was my version of Orestes. And then I thought, and then a friend of mine said, oh, you know, uh, the CIA has a website uh, at, at this uh, university in Illinois, I think it was. Wait, the CIA? So the Central Intelligence? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and he said, you know, and I think we can put something on it. Uh, <laughs> and then people could read it. <laughs> so uh, I said, okay. Um, so, I'm bugging uh, this conversation. Yeah, right. And so then, so then um, I thought, and I stole this Greek play, and then I stole all of this material about the Iraq War out of newspapers and TV shows. Am I going to copyright that in some old-fashioned way? No, I think. I mean. It's my version, so if somebody does exactly my version, then maybe they should get in touch with me. But if they just want to take this stuff and do whatever they want to do with it, they should be free to do that. So we put it on the uh, we put it on the computer before there was a real internet, and that became my website that I put other plays of mine on. And so I think this was back. Um, well, it would have been 15, 20 years ago at least. I mean, maybe 25 well, almost. I think it was like maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. It was before there, before there really was an internet. I had a website. Uh, Do you think that it led to more productions of your plays in, you know, small theaters and then community places and, and certainly student stuff? Do you think it got a lot more play of your plays? No, no question. No question. And, and around the world, because I mean, I mean, these days, you know, uh, somebody in China, Korea, uh, Berlin, 
wherever can take it off the website and do it. And you're fine with that. I mean, you're thrilled, as a matter of fact. Oh, and no matter I, how they, because so, yeah. So if there are some young people who like to do stuff in a bar in Seattle on a Saturday night, they can just take something off my website and do it, steal whatever they want and do, do it. Do you need to be notified? You don't get like a fifteen dollar reward. You just like go. So go At, but, 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 but yeah, it, it, it usually happens though that if there's a theater that wants to do it and it's a big enough theater to have a board of directors that has a lawyer on their board of directors, they'll say, well, we better get in touch with the playwrights. And so then- That's the more normal, because you're, you're known, you, you, you're not just an unknown playwright throwing plays on the web. I mean, you, you have a, a track record, both as a playwright and as a writer of books as well. Yeah. So, so let, let's bring this forward. Let, let's roll it back, if you will. You're this kid, you're playing football, then you get hurt, et cetera, and somehow you wind up in Harvard. What happened? There? What were you studying there? What were political science or something? How'd you get to Harvard? Sure, political science. I think it's, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, when I when I came out, uh, well, I mean, what what happened first of all was when I was in college, I was directing some plays. I was directing a couple of plays by Brecht, and the leading expert on Brecht at that time was a guy named Eric Bentley, who was oh, right. He just died like uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. No, right. And he was then, he was a professor at Columbia. So I came down to New York to talk to Bentley about Brecht. And over the few years that I was in college, I got to know him fairly well. So when I was finishing college, he said to me, so you want to be a playwright? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, you should get a job and support yourself. That doesn't have anything to do with words, but that has to do with numbers. Uh, so you don't wear yourself out. So I said, oh, oh okay. Uh, so I went down to Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith on Wall Street, and I got a job to be a trainee as an investment analyst. And then after I was there for a few months, my boss called me into his office and he said, now, you're doing really well. Um, and um, uh, so we were looking again at um, your application and uh, I see that uh, when you were in college, you never took an economics course. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, we think that um, you should really go to graduate school now uh, and do some economics. And Merrill Lynch will pay your uh, fees for that. And, I, and you uh, said, yeah. I, I said, thank you. And then I left his office and I thought, well, now I won't have time to write any plays anymore because I was working during the day and writing at night. Uh, and now, and now you have to take classes and study and then you wouldn't have, of course, yeah. So did yeah. you have a, a come to Jesus moment, if you will, a decision to make? Well, I, I, I thought, gosh, what was Eric Bentley thinking that he gave me this advice? And I thought, oh yeah, that old commie, he thought it was a joke and I didn't get the joke. Uh, so <laughs> I, I got home and, um, I found out that somebody I know knew worked for a little publishing company called American Heritage. So I asked for a, an introduction to them and I got a job there and then I worked in publishing. Oh my gosh. So you, you, well, you, you've been comfortable all your life. So you may have turned down hundreds of thousands of, you could have been working in, at Merrill Lynch 
you know, making X amount, but you, you seem like you had a steady gig. How long did you work for American Heritage? Well, in a way, I had a steady gig. I mean, so I worked for American Heritage, which also had a, a, a magazine called Horizon, which was a magazine of art, history, archaeology, anthropology, everything heavily illustrated. And I worked my way up and became editor of that. Well, but then I got, I was getting very involved in anti-Vietnam War politics. So I left my job at American Heritage to write citizen activist books about American international relations. Such as, give us some titles, please. Uh, well, uh, The Genius of the People about uh, the Constitutional Convention, uh, uh, The End of Order about uh, the peace conference at the end of World War One, meeting at Con meeting at Potsdam about the peace conference at the end of World War Two, other stuff like that about how America behaved in the world and how America should behave in the world. Good luck with that. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, I got I, I got good reviews and began to get some reviews that said it reads like a novel. It reads like a novel, and I thought, oh, I should write a novel. So I wrote a novel. I lived off credit cards for a year. So wait, wait, you had to stop working for the publishing company in order oh. to write the, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was no longer working for the publishing company and no longer writing Plays. Books, books, yeah. books that were selling and making money. I was working on this novel now. Yeah, plays had been long gone. Right. Yeah. Since I started doing anti-Vietnam War activities, I didn't have time to do any plays. So then I worked on this novel for a year and lived off credit cards. And then the doorbell rang and I was handed a, a piece of pink paper, uh, eight and a half by 14 inches that said, the sheriff would come next Wednesday and auction off my furniture for the non-payment of taxes. Oh, taxes? Uh, yeah. Oh boy, this is the low point. And so I, I reread my novel uh, and thought, oh, and this is junk. So I took it out to the corner and threw it in the trash can. No! And you were not, not even a, a copy you didn't, because uh, this was pre-computer, this would have been, you didn't go to pre-Kinkos and Xerox. It was your only, and what happened so, then? Then the next morning I woke up and I thought, there was stuff in that novel just that I wanted to remember for my own life. So I went out to the trash can to get it and it was gone. Of course, of course. So then I came back home and sat down at my desk and thought, well, I should make some notes just about the stuff I want to remember for myself, not for anybody else. Now, it won't be a novel, it won't be anything, but just for my own self. And so I began to write my notes. And that took the form of a trilogy of one-act plays that I wrote in, in 10 days. And I thought, oh, I get it. When I just do what I want for myself, what I love to do, this is it. So I'm going back to writing plays. But wait, I gotta ask you then and make the jump here. I mean, there's still that piece of paper. Is, did you suddenly also say to myself, you know, I better get a job real quick so I can just pay my taxes? I mean, because what I don't understand is you said one year you wrote a novel. Um, 
you know, one year you don't pay, the, it shouldn't have suddenly had a backlog where you didn't pay your annual income tax and the sheriff is suddenly coming for your stuff. Am I missing something here? How did, did you go years as a scoff law, as it were? Well, a, a couple of years anyway, because of my income from being an anti-war activist and a writer of political stuff wasn't so profitable. Really? Go figure. Yeah. All right. So, so what did you do to, first of all, to, to keep yourself out of hock and jail? Well, I, I went to the IRS office and I said to them what I was doing and could they give me a break and could I pay it monthly over a period of time? And so we made a deal. Good. Well, all right. So smart. Very good. So, but did you, again, I mean, you, so you wrote one act plays Mazel Tov and, they, and that started you back on the, the theater path, but how did you pay your bills at that point, week to week, month to month? Did you take another like uh, publishing gig? Yeah. So then I went back and got another publishing job. And then, but also, I had this play that I had written, and I didn't know what to do with it, because I didn't know anybody in the theater anymore. I'd been away from writing anything in the theater for 20 years. And so I thought, well, there's one guy I know who's in the theater. He works in that Xerox shop around the corner from where I live. And I, he has something to do with the theater. So I'll take it to him. So I took my script and I went into the Xerox shop and I said, hey, um, I, I wrote a play. He had been Xeroxing my political stuff for quite a while. I said, hey, I wrote this play and now I don't know what to do with it. Do you know what I could do with it? And he reached out and took it out of my hand and said, oh, I'll give it to my friend Joe Papp at the Public Theater. And that was Wally Shawn. No, well, did you hear the other part of that? That person was Wallace Shawn. Oh, my goodness. Inconceivable. That yep. Wallace Shawn, my gosh. So that was my lesson, too. Only ever, when you write a play, only ever give it to somebody you know. And I hope, actually, the, the first thing that Wally Shawn did with it was make a fucking copy so that you could have one in case one got lost or you threw it in the garbage. And then he took one and he gave it to Joe Papp and, and Papp read it and you got it. Did you get down in the public theater? So, so, then, so then I got a phone call. I was Joe Papp. Hi, I like your play. Now all we need is a director. I have a director, Martha Clark. Oh, my goodness. So he made a lunch date for me with Martha Clark. We went out to lunch. Martha said, well, I like your play, but, you know, I, I'm thinking that I just, I, I, right now, I, 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 I want to do this dance theater piece uh, about Vienna back at the turn of the century. I said, oh, I'll write the text for you. She said, no, there's not going to be any text. It's a dance theater piece. I said, no, I'll, I'll write the text for you. Don't worry. It'll be okay. So, Okay. And, did, and that became oh. a lost house. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. She said, okay. So that was that. What well, was it? That's the way I managed to go from writing very personal, though. One act plays about your experience, about your life. Was it very different to get into a different mindset where it's a piece about Vienna, you know, belly pocket? I, I forget what time it really took uh, place that has nothing to do with your life at all. Well, but it had to do with. Uh, feelings and thoughts and stuff that stuff that's the good the stuff it always stuff yes that resonated with me in one way or another and um and i decided also i i didn't know anything about vienna 
So it couldn't have a plot line of any kind. And anyway, if there was gonna be a lot of dancing going on, you couldn't make a well-made play. So what would you have? You'd have a bunch of pieces of text that you'd stick in here and there. Well, what would be the thing that would hold it together or make it feel as though it was going from here to here to here to here? Yeah. Um, spring, summer, autumn, winter. Hitler arrives, end of the play. And that has to be winter. But let me ask you though, that, that you bring this up of this idea of a well-made play. Now you have taught playwriting at uh, Columbia University. Are you still teaching in fact, yeah. at Columbia University playwriting? So when you have these young uh, 19, 20 year old, bright, talented kids coming at you, um, are the expectations, I mean, do you have to teach them the well-made play? But what do you do when you have people who don't, write that but they don't want to write that they want to write something more amorphous and dancey or how, how do you critique how do you do it no no I, I i say to them that i hope they'll do what i do which is you just write what you love and since you're the world's leading expert on what you love you can't be wrong that's wonderful but how do you do that for 16 weeks what do you what do you when someone hands you a script what do you tell them Oh, well, then we do a lot of, to begin with, we do a lot of exercises that most of us have been raised in this world of the play that goes cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. A causes B, causes C, causes D. And um, that's kind of traditional realism. But as I say to them, but you know, the Greeks, they did, the principal family advances the plot. The principal family advances the plot. Then the chorus riffs on that. The principal family ad advances the plot. The chorus riffs. So the chorus riffing, that can be talking or singing or dancing or performance art, whatever you want. That's what it was. And that, in a way, is the model of the American musical. People do stuff, and then they sing a song and dance. People do stuff, and then they sing a song and dance. I mean, isn't it true that uh, the Greeks, they would do a terrible, sad tragedy and then bring a giant penis out on stage and dance around it for, for the finale? I mean, I'm not joking. This is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then as you go through the history of the theater, you see, yeah, the principles advance plot, principles advance plot. Shakespeare, oh, Shakespeare has some plots, which are like choruses. Then you get to Henrik Ibsen, and he just has principles advance plot, principles advance plot, principles advance plot, no chorus. And then you get to Pina Bausch in Germany, and it's just the chorus riffs, the chorus riffs, the chorus riffs, the chorus riffs. So I say to the students, so you can do anything. You can have both, you can have one, you can have the other. You can do whatever you want, whatever you love. So then we do usually exercise. What a wonderful way of looking at the history of the, I mean, I've never thought of it that, in that sense of it, you know, it's either the, either you've got the well-made play or you've got the play that's kind of avant-garde and abstract. There's not this sense of, oh, principal family and or subplots and or, oh, the chorus riffing or a mixture of all that. What a, that's, you just blew my mind, Charles. Chuck, Chuck, me. Chuck. By the way, speaking of something that has a mix of all these kinds of things, we want to let people know that your new play, Utopia, is going to be done virtually by, and I, I hate to say the name of this troupe, Cutting Ball Theater, because right. as, as someone who uh, you know, moonlights as a moil 
Ball cutting is not a good thing, but it's the cutting ball theater that is doing your play Utopia, which is mixing. It's like there's animation, there's dance. Tell us about this show. Well, and that it's okay. It starts out. It's about a young girl and her mother go to a cafe for coffee and ice cream, and they get to listen to all the other people in the cafe having conversations, and the people are black and white and. Asian and South American and Indian and straight and gay and lesbian and young and old. And, uh, but none of them happen to mention that at all. Uh, they're not denying any differences in race and gender and age, uh, but they're not living in a world where these are difficult issues that need to be addressed. They live in the world that has evolved beyond that to a place where everyone is living together and feeling good together and just needing to talk about food and tea and love. And this is utopia. That's so cool. That's so sweet. This is the world where the nine-year-old wants to live in, the world that really feels good to everyone. So, of course, they sing and dance and they eat croissants. Or, or did you know that Popeyes is now doing chocolate beignets? That was in the news. Says, Pop, where you can get your fried chicken and your Louisiana beignets. Does life get better than that? That's utopia for me, ladies and gentlemen, even though it's not coach, don't tell anybody. But when they do your show, is it going to be the unavoidable, what we're doing now, the box, 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 like the, the two people in the cafe are on top and then the, the other people in the cafeteria or the, the coffee shop are around them in boxes? Or how, are they, how is, are they advancing this whole Zoom form of theater now? See, how would I know? Because years ago, wandering around Europe, seeing stuff, I thought, oh, the playwrights who get the best productions are the dead playwrights. Maybe that's because they don't go to rehearsal. So the director and the actors are free to do whatever they want. So ever since then, I've never gone to a rehearsal of any of my plays. And so you have no idea what they're going to do. You you yeah. come cold to you watch it the opening, yeah. in the opening I'm, night. I'm I'm there for opening night, and that's fun for me because I haven't seen it. What a wonderful attitude you have about so many of these things. I mean, if, I, if they were doing a play of mine, and I've done a play of mine, believe me, and, and I shot it myself during rehearsal. I'm like, oh, I did that wrong. And, I, and over and over again, I, when I was doing Shalom, damn it. But this is a, a wonderful thing of, of this idea of like, I'm, I'm a viewer now. Yeah, I wrote it. It's in the ozone. Take it. Let me see. Let me, let me sit back and what are you going to do? You know, no. What a fabulous idea. But have you ever been really angry or upset or disappointed when they took one of your and you were like, oh, I give out. Or oh, yeah, sure, sure. So this, when you do it this way, you get some really bad productions and you get some really great productions and you get some in between. Well, like everything else, you can yeah. be in rehearsal and get the same, same exact thing. Can I ask, um, have you been, are you a viewer of Zoom theater? Do you take the time to watch other people's plays now in the six months since March when all theater has essentially been this? Uh, have you seen it? Have you liked any? Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't done it a lot. I've done it a little bit, but not a lot. Okay. Um, I'm wondering about like the Richard Nelson plays, for example. Those seem to be the first thing that people mention of the family dynamic, because it reminds me a little bit of your coffee shop idea of just people, uh, not big storm on drang or uh, this idea of Deus Ex Mac. No big stuff happens, just little emotional undercurrents. Right. Have you seen that or others like that? Oh, well, I hope I'm about to see it. <laughs> in, in your own show. So we're talking, by the way, with Chuck, me, 
and about working only with all the stuff that you've done, except when people take your stuff and, and show you it, you've worked with or through friends, which is wonderful, but you have also worked through family. How, how is it collaborating on some level, which you've done a few times with your daughter? I love it. I really love it, yeah. And she's doing a kind of theater that I love, too. Which is? Uh, well, she has her own theater company called This Is Not a Theater Company, because they never perform in a theater, only in swimming pools and on the Staten Island Ferry and in people's living rooms uh, and on the subway. This is actually going to be the next wave of theater when, when theater comes back in New York before Broadway does. That's what people will be doing anyway. She was ahead of the curve. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she's done your works. I mean, but, but do you feel, again, you're not part of the rehearsal process, so you don't work with her. You just give her a play and say, go ahead, and then you come and look? Yeah. Are you, but do you have okay. any critics? Are you, do, when you see it, can you say, eh, this I didn't like, or you're just like, oh, it's wonderful. Thank you. I, I love you, my daughter. Uh, well, I, I, in fact, I always do love it. I mean, don't forget, uh, we grew up together, my daughter and I. I would hope so, yeah. So we have a lot of the same tastes and impulses and instincts and uh, stuff like that. And so it's like yeah, production is it's almost as good as if my own daughter directed it. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question here. We're, we're talking with Chuck, me, the playwright of Utopia, by the way, which is being done by Cutting Ball Theater, which is going to be. They'll have a premiere, and then people can see it uh, for a, a couple of weeks, right? It won't just go away. It's like a one night thing, right? I think for a month. Yeah, for a month. You can you can go see that. But well, let's move on to a couple of other sort of side questions. I couldn't sneak in there in other ways. So I'm just going to throw them out at you. You wrote a book about H.R. Holdeman of now, Watergate, what did you learn from talking with and writing about H.R. Hold, about yourself, about America, about politics, if anything? Oh, I don't know. I mean, because the uh, among the other sort of political activities I was involved in back in the day, um, <clears throat> I was the founder and chairman of the National Committee on the Presidency, uh, formed to impeach Richard Nixon. Um, and so, because I was working in publishing, we knew how to do direct mail campaigns and how to get, I knew how to get writers and designers and other people to make stuff to send out. And the strategy was that the zip code had just recently been invented. And I realized that, oh, yeah, you can match up congressional districts and zip codes. So you could find the congressional districts of the key swing votes on the House Judiciary Committee to bring a bill of impeachment. So you could mail out fundraising money to democratic districts all around the country to raise money to then be able to mail uh, more mail to the congressional districts that were the key votes on the Judiciary Committee. And you would get a lot of statistics about the people who live there being pro-impeachment. And then we would go down to Washington, knock on the door of the, of the congressperson who was in that congressional district and say, look, this is what your constituents are thinking, that you ought to vote in favor of impeachment. Uh, so that was a big 
campaign that we did. Did it work? Did, did, I mean, well, Nixon was almost, he would have been, but did, do you think it, all those efforts actually made a diff? Did it work? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, 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 they brought, they voted then the articles of impeachment. They were brought before the House. And uh, then Nixon resigned because he right. saw... So he would have been... So, but let me ask, I mean, I love this idea that obviously you, you are as comfortable with numbers as you are with words. And, and I want to go back to that, actually, that whole, uh, that thing you learned from, I think it was Bentley. I don't know if he was joking, because this idea that, you know, Tennessee Williams used to write, as you know, he mentioned in the play, he would write things on a little bit of a shoebox to help him, and he would just sell shoes all day and then go home and write. Whereas if he had a writing job all day, he wouldn't go home and write. He'd do anything but. Did you right. find that it turned out to be true and it wasn't a joke? Like when you have to do stuff and work all, in words and publishing all day, you wouldn't want to go home and write? It, it actually, no, I actually was fine oh. publishing and writing together. And, and also work manipulating the numbers. So what have the Democrats been doing wrong for, uh, for four years? Why, of all the things that they try to get rid of Trump for various reasons, right or wrong, everything they've been doing has just pretty much been failing, right? Uh, it seems odd to me. I don't understand why they never had, they haven't developed a strategy uh, as smart as I was. Uh, and I'm stupid. I mean, I don't know anything about politics. Well, you're Harvard stupid, but all right, yeah. I mean, I don't know why they had they didn't figure out what was a strategy that would get them the votes that would get them there. Right. Because <clears throat> obviously the popular vote doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> you gotta you gotta get the vote in the right districts. You you could have been. But are you are you still? I mean, I imagine you're not a, a Trump supporter. But are you still political in any way? Do you, are you active? Or you're just like, I'll vote, but that's it. Yeah, that really is now. I mean, I spent so much of my life doing citizen politics that, okay, I've done my public duty, and now I get to do my <laughs> private pleasure. Yeah. Well, let me ask, of all the plays that you have written, which would be the one that you are closest to? Do you have, do you have a favorite child, in a manner of speaking? That's too hard. I have a bunch of favorites, I think. Um, I mean, I do love <clears throat> a piece called Big Love, which is... Yeah, well, in some ways, your most well-known piece. Yeah. It was a piece that really put you in, in shall we say, the, the consciousness of theater in America, Big Love, which was done in Louisville and was done in New York, and it's, it's an, an adaptation of Greek which, which play or plays was it? Well, I, uh, it, people used to think it was the oldest Greek play that still existed, but now more recent scholarship thinks maybe it's the second oldest. And it's, a, it's from a trilogy called the Danaids. And uh, so The Suppliant Women is one of those three plays. And uh, the, of the three plays, one of them was totally lost. So my play is the lost play. I well, you, you, they found the fragment, and that idea of the fragment influenced you too. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, who doesn't love suppliant women? I know I do. This is, this is one thing. I'm kidding. But, so, and, and, but that play, was it because it changed your life as a playwright, or you just felt somehow this is the one that is the most me, <laughs> M-E-E-N-M-E? 
Well, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels as though it has a storyline, but also it's got a lot of tremendous amount of physical activity and women throwing themselves to the floor, men throwing themselves to the floor, a guy throwing saw blades into the wall, uh, a, a lot of... And oh, let's not forget yeah. nudity. There's, it depends on who produces it, but nudity, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, Big Love is, is kind of your, your closest baby, even though on some level you, you must love them all. We've been talking with Chuck me. He is the author of, well, the new play, Utopia, that is going to be produced by Cutting Bowl Theater. I actually have the dates on this. It's from October 16th through November 15th. Just look for Cutting Bowl Theater on the web. But before we let you go, and, and of course, thank you so much for being so delightful and so open about your life and what you do, let me ask you at this stage and age, how much of your day is set aside? I mean, do you have a regimen for when you write, or for, for when you write plays? And also, are you more of a writer of plays or an editor? I mean, you spend X amount of time just doing the first draft, and then all this extra time cutting it and shaping it and throwing out and doing, or are you more like mostly writing, and then uh, go back and edit a little, but uh, you kind of get it in the first or second go? Well, yeah. I mean, back in the early day, I had, I had a really great discipline. Uh, I got up at um, seven o'clock in the morning. I was at my desk at eight o'clock with a cup of coffee and I started writing and I drank four or five cups of coffee in the morning and worked until noon, stopped at noon, had lunch from noon to one, back to my desk at one o'clock. And then I left my desk at three o'clock so that I wouldn't try to be writing when I was tired out. Right. Then uh, go out to art galleries in the afternoon. And then of course, have a crash because I hadn't had any coffee. So drink some more coffee. And then by five o'clock uh, with the second bunch of coffee, uh, I'd attack the first person who came into the room. Uh, so I finally managed to give up drinking coffee. Oh, oh my goodness. But you must have headaches, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. But, but as time went on, um, my, my sense of, schedule and discipline began to disappear and now all I have is this obsessive compulsive disorder where I have no schedule of any kind whatsoever but I get up in the morning and if I'm thinking of something I'll make some notes about that and then I'll go and have breakfast and then oh maybe I'll make some notes while I'm having breakfast uh, and then I'll Maybe I'll go out somewhere to do something. Oh, and well, I'll think of something. So I'll get out my cell phone and send myself a text message. And so I'm doing this all day. I'm doing whatever, whatever. And then, oh, at some point, I might end up back at my desk for a few hours. Uh, but that might be 2.30 in the afternoon or 10 o'clock at night. I don't know. And it's just a total obsessive compulsive disorder. I can't stop writing. I keep saying to myself, you should stop, you should stop, because by the end of the year, I've written more than I should have. Is there such a thing? Yeah. I mean, Andy Warhol would say, well, you wrote 10 plays this year, you, you, you should have written 15. You know, yeah, but no, no, but I, I, there are many, many, many years where I've written three plays a year. And most playwrights, that's a lot. Yeah. Most playwrights write maybe one play every three years. Right. And I'm, I was writing three plays in one year. Uh, year after year after year. 
uh, and uh, I can't stop. Uh, you would think at my age I'd be mature enough to be able to slow down, but I can't. And, and you're, a, you're only 82, dude. You could live to 112 for all you know. And I, and I don't write, I never, I don't write a first draft, second draft, third draft. I only ever write 742 drafts all at the same time. You know, I'm writing something and then I'll, on the computer, I'll think, oh, this should go at the end, I'll cut, paste, move it toward the beginning, or right. that could go with this scene. Oh, then, so I'm writing and rewriting at the same time. And, uh, uh, but the stuff that may I ask the, the things that you are writing now, post utopia, as it were, are you thinking in terms of just theater the way it was half a year ago, to, you know, in an off Broadway house or in some regional theater or, or in a storefront, perhaps? Or has the past six months said, well, why am I writing for that? I need to be writing for my daughter to do this in a sweat or, yeah. I mean, or, you know, do you co-write with your daughter ever? But but point is, do you, are you still in the mindset, oh, oh, a year from now, it'll be in a regular theater, or your your brain doesn't work that way, you know? No. What? What? I just, I just write whatever I want to write. And, uh, and I, I mean, the truth is, I, I'm not usually being very logical and reasonable. I'm usually sort of seeing stuff happening on stage. And then this happens and that happens and oh, then he says this. Oh, and then she says that, okay. And then, oh, and then he does this, uh-huh. Oh, he should have done that earlier. But you're not tempted to specifically write for the Zoom form, nothing like that. You're still writing in that way of characters happening, talking to each other, dancing, doing something else. And then coming out of that in a any in some kind of theater space, even if we're not talking, of course, of Broadway proscenium, but in, in a theaterish space rather than this digital, you know, sphere of boxes. Even though obviously directors are welcome to take your work and do it in that Zoom way. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, another piece that's about to come on um, uh, video on um, October. Uh, 11th, I guess it is, uh, or is it 16th? Uh, anyway, uh, I, years, a couple of years ago, I was at a dinner party for an old friend of mine, a director named Tina Landau, uh, and I met another friend of hers, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Streb, who has a company of acrobats in Brooklyn. Right. Yeah. And uh, we had a really fun conversation, and I said, oh, we should have lunch sometime, not for business, but just for the fun of it. So we went out to lunch a little while after that. And then I couldn't help myself. I said, oh, Elizabeth, you know, what would be fantastic is your acrobats are flying through the air and it's beautiful and ecstatic, fantastic and scary and horrible. And then there are a few actors standing around talking about love. She said, oh, I'd love to do that. But you know, I don't work with actors. We, we need a director. I said, oh, yeah, how about Ann Bogart? She said, oh, I'd love to work with Ann Bogart. So I got the cell phone out of my pocket. Uh, Hello, Ann. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'd love to do that. Good, done. So um, we did it last year at the Peak Performance Festival in New Jersey. And it is people flying through the air and falling and stuff going on like that. 
Right. And your text, you, you wrote the, the love stuff. And then there's stuff, actors occasionally coming here or there or here or there talking about love or having a relationship or uh, having an argument. Uh, and you're saying this has been recorded and they're going to be premiering and they'll, they'll put it on the web. What is the name of it? It's, it's, putting, it's going on WNET. Oh, um, on Channel 13. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's called Falling in Love. <laughs> falling in Love. I love falling it. And oh, loving. Oh, falling in Loving. Sorry about that. Yeah, so yeah. everybody goes falling in love. Yeah. So yeah. Go see it. Well, when it, they'll, they'll go see it. It'll come to you if you have channel 13 or, or 13 yeah. on the web, WNET. But um, this piece by Charles, me, and of course, also Utopia from him and Cutting Bowl Theater. Chuck, it has just remains for me to, first of all, thank you ever so much for taking this time to be what, taking a time out of, I'm sure while we've been talking, you mean, you know, I should write something about my rabbi. All right, let me make a note. In the back of your head, I got a crazy rabbi who shouts a lot. This, there's something in this, and people falling and dancing while he's doing it. There you go. Oh, he's writing. He's writing stuff for himself, and I've seen it, and it's terrific. So oh. I don't have to write. I don't have to write stuff for him, although that would be fun for sure. Well, that's a boy. I'm blushing, and, and all four cheeks. Let me tell you, Chuck, me, it has been so delightful having you in the neighborhood. I wish you, so, of course, good health. I can. I wish you so much good theater. And maybe you don't want to do this, but I hope you write four plays next year and five <laughs> plays the year after that, and they're all done in wonderful ways by wonderful people. Chuck, stay well. Thank you for being with us in the neighborhood. This has been total pleasure. Thanks a lot. And shalom to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Oh, my friends, Chuck, me, with me, Rabbi Saul, in the neighborhood on this Shabbos, this Sukkot Shabbos of 2020, October 3rd. Oh, wasn't that delightful? Oh, wasn't that so lovely talking to this playwright and gentleman? I got to say, you know, usually I don't like Goyim, but this guy, he is all right by me. Well, <laughs> and, and he's saying like my play, so that's that's certainly all right by me. Get it by me, M E E me. That's kind of funny. Let's do a blessing over this. This. It's an etrog. It is a citron, which I don't even know what the hell that is. And this, of course, is the the lulav, which you know, if you don't have an enema handy, this works. This. Is the uh, sauce? This is the lulav sauce. Let's pour some on here. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Mm -mm, good. Oh, <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, David was talking about seeing the boys in the band. Ah, there you go. This is the way to celebrate the holidays. So, whether you're in a sukkah or, or whether you like just sucks, I wish you a very good, happy week. This is me, Rabbi Saul Solomon, founder of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. And Dave will be back with you in just a moment or two or three. Who are you?
and they're wet and so they don't slide properly across the, the bar here of the uh what's up with the ketchup bottle well ladies and gentlemen uh, you know it is the jewish holidays and we are doing the dave's gone by facebook yo podcast yo of the stream and so I, if you missed the early part of the program or, or our broadcast last week we i did mention that i'll it's, it's, it's rather more magnificent than you can even imagine. I uh, ordered from eBay a blow-up ketchup as well as a blow-up inflatable <laughs> Heinz fake grill. Does, does life get there? I don't think so. You know, we're all worried. We're all terrified of the disease. We all are, are scared of the politics that's happening. We, it's just been the most uh, year hasn't it? And we still got three more months left. So if I can, I can make my life more joyful, not to mention the life here of uh, Potato, more joyful by bringing him, oh, whoops, that's falling oh, over. Oh. <laughs> hey, hold on. Ah. Look at this, look at this. You know, this is a Potato's idea of utopia. So, yes, that is why we have the giant inflatable festive ketchup on this episode of the Dave's Gone By Show. With me, Dave Leftwitz, my darling and adorable wife, Joyce. And um, potatoes are here. Tomato is here as a spray. We don't normally bring up tomato, but, you know, the ketchup, how could we not? It's, it's basically his cemetery. So, <laughs> let's give a shout out to the Davidians watching this episode, our 766th episode of Dave's Gone By on this October 3rd, 2020. We're calling it Me Too, in honor of the wonderful guest who was talking to Rabbi Saul moments ago, Charles Me. But these are the Davidians. These are the folks who watch the show. And those include Michelle and Trevor and Gaylord and David and Bill and Glenn and Leonard and Lisa, Julie, Peter, David, Rick, John, Mel. I don't think we ever had a Mel before. Lisa, Jonathan, George, and... Oh my God, James <laughs> Will, I think that is, or, or Anel, Chris, Joey, Jan, Robert, Totag. I can't say that, I don't know how to say that. Todd Tag, uh, <laughs> Anthony, Anthony, okay, Steve, <laughs> Bill, Andrew, Kurt, Matt, Mercedes, Leslie, Purr. Oh, Purr tuned in last week. Yes, He's back. Welcome, Purr. Um, you would have liked Leslie Hope and Blake's little kitty. Her. Oh, two Peters. There we go. Howie, uh, Lon or John, Bo, Antonio, Trevor, James, Paul, Babby. Oh, Bobby. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> I'm trying to 
Vicky, Alan, Jerry, Rick, Tim, Angela, Louise, and Warhol, of course, Chris, and Irina, and Chris, and Stephen, <laughs> Vicky, James, Joel, Mark, Jack, I think, and Mayan, Megan, maybe Megan, and Julie. So uh, if I missed your name, uh, you know, Joyce is, is doing yo woman's work here by dealing with the watch party, by helping me out with the show, by pay <clears throat> paying attention to the show when I, I ask her to because she's so busy just dealing with the tech of the Facebook of the show. So if we missed your name, I apologize, or if we mispronounced it, just know that I am thrilled and delighted when so many people tune in every Saturday morning from 9 until noon or thereabouts to this program, which um, it is our 18th anniversary of Dave's Gone By, a mix of humor and talk and music, which is sponsored in part by the fine folks at Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway in Hewlett, Long Island, been around since the mid-1970s when the Toron family took over this franchise of Minuteman that does copying and printing and binding. They also do silk screening, like if you wanted to do this shirt, they, they do. They, you don't need to go to Cutting Ball Theater. If you need circumcisions, they've got like a 3D printer, I think, that will do that for you. Just leave in the baby. Theater, but, um, what, what, what? They'll mention, oh, Sherry's back. Um, he mentioned, Bill said, Yeah. Um, thank you for mentioning Crystal Field Theater in New City. They're doing their virtual Halloween ball. A virtual Halloween cutting bowl, which sounds really, really painful. But yeah, Theater for the New City is still around. La Mama is still around. Some of those other places are not. Um, that was the weird thing when we were watching Boys in the Band earlier in the week. And they showed a documentary about it. And they showed Mark Crowley's play opening at the theater, like the opening night in 1968. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't recognize that place. What theater was that? I don't know if it, that ended up becoming the Lortel or if it's just a place that no longer exists. But anyway, um, Hewlett Minuteman Press, you get 10% off any job, big or small, if you tell them Dave sent you. So whether it's for wedding invitations or you need business cards or you need your logo on something like this, Hewlett Man Minuteman Press can get them done. They do it all, so give them a call. 516-569-5577. Area code 516-569-5577. Hewlett Minuteman Press. They are the copy kings. And um, I do want to also remind you that, you know, the show is, is already almost three hours in, and we still have other stuff to do. We'll, we'll go a bit longer than noon today on the program, as if we never do that. But if you missed the early part of the show, if you tuned in for Chuck Me, and you were like, hey, oh, I missed that quiz. That, that looked fun, but I tuned in too late. It's okay. Remember that we have our archives in many, many places. For example, the main one, davesgoneby.com. Dave, like my name, S-G-O-N-E-B-Y, davesgoneby.com. We have our first episode from 18 years ago. Audio only, we're a radio show, it's there. We also have our fifth episode and our 50th and our 150th and our 650th. They're all there for free anytime you want them. 
davesgoneby.com. We even have a separate archive for the guests, the friends of the neighborhood who have been on the show. So if you give it a day or two and you want to rewatch the Charles Me interview or, or share it with somebody, you can just go right to our website, davesgoneby.com. We're like Chuck Me in that we take our stuff and we give it to the world for free. Now, again, back in the day, we put our show on CD and, and charged for it and like four people bought it. So it's like, you know what, just, just give it away. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. We do. So either at davesgoneby.com or you can go to archive.org. This is a website. I've got nothing to do with it. It's a not-for-profit website that archives books and media and plays from the last century and a half at archive.org. And if you look for Dave's Gone By, You'll see all our episodes and all our interviews there as well. If you are a podcasty kind of person and you just want to listen, castbox.fm. Castbox.fm. And there you will have every episode we've ever done be audio only available to you. Now remember, the first 15 years of the program were audio only. It was radio. So it's not that big a change. It's just the last three years we've been doing this. But it's all at castbox.fm. And finally, we've also been putting our shows, everything we've ever done on YouTube. Um, YouTube messes a bit with some of the older shows because of copyright infringement on music that we were playing. That sucks. That's why I send you to davesgoneby.com instead. But, you know, if you're a YouTube person or you don't like surfing all these different websites, fine. You'll find a whole bunch of Dave's Gone By on YouTube too. So there. So that is how to catch up. Catch up with Dave's Gone By past and present. So, my darling, um, how you doing? You, you're still holding up okay? Because we got more show to do. We still have our Colorado Limerick of the Damned. We're going to Custer, Colorado. And we have Dave's Big Dick Chinary, where I will be talking extemporaneously, completely off the cuff, about the word plunder, plunder. Haven't even had the time to think about it. Haven't, haven't had the, a moment to even um, sort out in my head where that word brings me and what to, to even talk about it. Plunder. Hmm. I'll think about it. I'll work on it. But before that, let's do a bit of Greeley Crimes and Old Times because this is a, a segment where Joyce and I used to live in Greeley, Colorado. It's a, a town in Wilt County, a city really, a small city in northern Colorado <laughs> that um, has a small town-ish newspaper called the Greeley Tribune, which here's, here's a, a copy. This is real, absolutely real. The Greeley Tribune has been around for well over 100 years, so they still are publishing uh, half on the web now, but definitely publishing, and publishing two columns every week. One is called Cop Log, which are um, phone calls that come into the Weld County Police Dispatch from people who want to report something unusual going on in their neighborhood. We mix those up with a column that Mike Peters does in the Trib that is called 100 Years Ago. He goes through the newspapers back in 1920 and pulls out the most odd unusual, weird, nostalgic things that were in the paper back in the day. We mix them up and we call this segment Greeley Crimes and Old Times. Now, 
So yes, what was happening in Greeley, Colorado this past week, and also 100 years ago this past week. And we'll start, as we generally do, with a crime, or something that falls under the cop log rubric. A woman called to complain that the Department of Human Services, that's our complaint noise, was making her drug tests come back with false positive results. So, I know pot, I guess, is supposed to make you paranoid. So she's like, my, my pot tests are coming back positive. Not, oh, how? Oh, you think? That's sad. I mean, why would they want to do that? Because there's a meth to her madness. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Anyhow, another, uh, oh, police were responding to suspicious activity outside of a carpet store on 10th Street where a man inside a Jeep kept putting things up his nose and mouth and convulsing for a minute. Now, I think if you put something, anything into my nose. Uh, no, not she up his nose and mouth. Like, uh, I would start convulsing. Why would he put whipped cream up there? What's he doing? I don't admit that's why they call the police. You know? Um, I. <laughs> what? Like, what are you possibly. Like, is it a substance or like his fingers? Or, I don't know. A man in it, I'm just reading verbatim. A man kept putting things up his nose and mouth and convulsing for a minute. What could that. I don't know, but I want to try it. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like up your nose and mouth. Like, I have no idea. Maybe he was just eating really good chocolate. Mm. You know, like he mm. smelled it and he was eating really good that chocolate. That could be. Or he could have been in a Chuck Me play virtually, and like his his moment was to do it was his dance and his performance and go and and then. And then, like, Martha Clark tells him, okay, stop, or Pina Bausch. And, and then I like that he said, I like that he said, like, you don't need, you know, you need text. And she's like, I don't need text. He's like, you do need text. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I yeah. love it. I, you know, that's ballsy. He's like, yeah, it. let me just write this for you. Old times. Let's get to an old time thing. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry I missed this. A hundred years ago, this week or last, in Greeley, Colorado, the Swastika Luncheon Club. Oh, God. Dude, I'm going to now remember, this was 1920, so the swastika didn't mean. The swastika and the culture it derives from is peace. It's like the wheel. It's it was, it was a Native thing, Native American. It's a very, it's not, it's not, it was, it was yeah. um, misappropriated. Is that the word? Sure. Misappropriated. Yeah. It, was, it was removed, acculturated, and misappropriated. Yeah, because now we see it. It's like, ah, but no, before it was a, a Ganesh, friend of ours. So Ganesh, when you yeah. look at Ganesh, right? Yeah. Picture of Ganesh, he has a bunch of like symbols. Yeah. One of them is this swastika. Right, I've seen that. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, holy yeah. crap, Nazi elephants. No, it's he's not. not a Nazi. Right, you know. <laughs> no, the hyenas are Nazis. The elephants are okay. But you said you'd eat one before. That was disgusting. Remember our friend, um, oh, what's his name? But uh, he's been on the show. Friend of the Dead. He wrote a book about swastikas. This is not a joke. He actually wrote a book about the and history. Catcher? No, um, years and years ago. It lives nearby. Um, has the record collection. Oh, Jeff. There's a Jeff, right. Jeff Roth. Jeff Roth. He, 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 you can go find it. It's like an academic he book almost. He also something on a, 
on a body party. So, you know, he goes both, he goes he does. culture, low culture, yeah? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the Swastika Luncheon Club meets this week for the first luncheon of the year. Food will be served at 1 p.m. So don't, what do you serve at a Swastika Club lunch? Vienna sausages. Sour broccoli. Yeah, right. Vienna sausages, sauerkraut. <laughs> That's right. And the lampshades look really funny there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go near them. Oh, they You know, Amos. Amos is a quiet child in Greeley. And when his mother asked him why he played by himself most of the time and did not play with other children, Amos said, oh, they disturb my think. I like to what? be alone with me. Unquote. This is, this is just something that popped into the paper 100 years ago. It's, it's supposed to be like a cute thing a child says. They disturb my think. I like Aww. to be alone with me. And then Amos changed his name to Agolf and joined the Swastika Club. So it I worked like out. I like to be alone with me. That's, yeah. Uh, who else said things like that? Well, Charles Nee's wife likes to be alone with me. You, uh, 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 you, said, uh, you said you like to spend a lot of time alone with I, married. I do. I still like to spend a lot of time. That's, that's the, the way I am. But we're doing, uh, oh no, I lost the page. I've not only lost the thread, I've lost the page. Really crimes hell times, let's do some more crime. Ladies and gentlemen, a caller and an ice cream shop reported that a man asked if they had a metal pole to stab things with. Because, quote, people are getting killed out there. <laughs> the only ice cream shop is the Baskin Robbins. I know, well, he's pointed to a nearby park. Oh yes, remember the... Um... The, the lake, that big lake. Yeah. What was it called? You know the lake, that lake near Centennial the... Centennial or... No, maybe. Yeah, no, the ice cream. We used to go shop there all the time. So, so this is a man asking uh, people if they had a metal pole to stab things with, because people are getting killed out there. The caller said the man was making people uncomfortable. Uh, you know something? Um, <laughs> if you've ever been polled, you know how painful nothing, that can be. If somebody said there's a lot of kids... Like, that place was so like the newer, like there's not a lot of killing. The only killing in that park was fish getting on the hook. Oh, there you that, go. Or yeah. maybe a goose cooked, you know. Or and when the evenings go down and, and we have those um, night creatures, what do they call that? The be not beavers, but um, raccoons. Raccoons and, and sometimes possums and we would start climbing, fishing. You got almost stuck on the the we used to call it jungle gym, but the climbing thing, the climbing castle in that park. I like that climbing castle. I did. Let's go elsewhere. Because we're doing really crimes at all times, but very often, or at least once per episode, we go away from Greeley, Colorado for news of elsewhere in the world. And now let, let's, we're going to take it to, ooh, ooh, the place that inspired the chocolate beignets at Popeye's, Golden Meadow, Louisiana. Justin Savoy, age 24, pleaded guilty Friday to weapons charges last week. This is wonderful. Police in Golden Meadow, who arrested Savoie last year on a separate matter, discovered that he had stashed a load of 25 caliber pistols. Where? Uh, in the beignets. No. Although, metaphorically. In his what? He had stashed, a, oh, not a load of, a loaded 25 caliber pistol in his buttocks. He had, police took Savoy into custody in late December <laughs> after they responded to suspicious activity in his home. How could you stick a gun up your butt? Well, it's a little, it's a handgun. It's a little uh, loaded uh, 25 caliber. But up your tushy? In, in, 
Cops found a handgun, marijuana, and drug paraphernalia in their search. They also found more firearms in his truck. But as Savoie was being strip searched after his arrest, police found another weapon, quote, concealed in his rear end. But it's not the rear end, it's your rectum. It's not no. like between your I don't know how fat this guy. The pistol is more than four inches long. Oh, Lordy. With a two and a half inch barrel. Um, and, I, and I understand that it was loaded. He's lucky he didn't shoot himself. I mean, diarrhea can be fatal for a lot of people, but can you imagine that? Savoie was sentenced to a five year suspended sentence, including three years probation and 90 days in the local jail. But, oh my, oh my God. Can you imagine? That's like, you know what, you gotta love it though. I mean, if you talk about a pistol packing mama, just imagine. But this is, it wouldn't occur to you. Why, why do they strip search people? Why do they have to do this at airports? Why? This is why. There's folks who can hide a loaded handgun where the sun doesn't shine. I mean, that's, that's, that's in some ways, America is beautiful that way. Now we do that with really, really, really obese but people, you know, like, where they can hide weapons under the I'm folds sorry, of their fat. Like, do you want to like? This is always my thing. Like, yeah. if you want to be the police person or the guard who has to like check people's hineys, like that would not be the job I want. Well, and, first of all, you're wearing even before the pandemic, you'd be wearing gloves. Yeah, but even then, do you want to do that? Like, that's a rough job. Well, tell that to really, honestly, tell it to a proctologist. Yeah, who makes a quarter million dollars a year. Yeah, but they're doing that for health. Like, if policemen's looking for stuff, like... The health of the populace. You know, if you, you find something in there, you're either saving that person's life or saving whoever's going to take the drugs that they're... What, what yeah. happens if they got the gun out, and while they were getting the gun out, they shot them in the, in the intestines? Like, would that, what's that about? That would be, <laughs> be uh, very bad. That's bad, yeah. They've got to be real careful. I mean, it's, it was a loaded handgun. One wrong move, you know? What happens if he farted? Would the methane, like, trigger the bullet to go? All I know is that he was apparently well-treated, so at least um, to Savoie, they were fair. Okay, Savoie, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, give me one sec. Yeah, no, I, I rightfully apologize for that. Let's stay elsewhere, by the way. Let's, let's do another time in our Greeley Crabs and Old Times segment that isn't from Greeley. This is Miami, Florida. The Guardian newspaper reported this. Mark Johnson is a professional artist who paints realistically about Florida marine life. One morning, strolling along by a canal with his golden retriever, Johnson was attacked by an eight-foot alligator. The reptile reptile lunged from the water. raced to Johnson and chomped his leg. Sixty stitches ensued. Johnson said he freed himself by jabbing his index fingers into the gator's oh eyes. God. See, this is the guy who could use the metal pole, a sharpened metal pole. Um, the 61-year-old painter then added, I've already got the canvas ordered to paint it. Said Johnson, quote, the, the image will be in my mind the rest of my life. I see my foot. I see the gator. Oh, God, David. He had green eyes. The teeth were pearly white. No stains. David, how do you know the teeth? Because it's a gator. It's an alligator. Hold on, hold on. I have a perfect thing for that. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, no. Hold on. I got to see it. He went to the dentist. He did. 
He did. The alligators take care of their team. They're good about it. They make a point. How do they go in the dentist? How do they pay? They got little hands. How do they pay? Just threats. Is that, I, <laughs> dentist, I will eat you if you clean my teeth. You know? Now, th- th- there's more about this alligator. He, he wanted to roll so he could, th- he could start dismembering. That's what they do. They, they flip around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He started clamping down above my knee, and my shoe oh, was sticking out the base of his jaw. Oh, man. Like, would you want to see that? Like, that's so bad. After Johnson got away, he limped home with blood dripping from his leg. There he saw Rex, his dog, who obeyed his order to run when the alligator attacked. Good. Well, smart, dog. smart for the dog. It's like, it's like, like alligators attacking me is like, sick him. What's the dog? Run, Rex. What's the dog? The dog's probably like two pounds. It would have been like an hors d'oeuvre. Well, dogs have teeth. And they can, they no, can. they can. The alligator, you saw alligator skin is rough. It's like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Rex was waiting for him when he got home, <laughs> limping home. And Rex was like, where's my lunch? Did they take <laughs> off his foot or his foot? No, he, well, he's 60 stitches. He got. You know, he lucked out. Yeah. That, he could have lost a foot, a leg. Yeah. Well, then, if he lost a whole leg, they would have had to call him Eileen. <laughs> So, um, so we're, 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 this is, says Johnson, quote, <laughs> under, this is, you know, in a year of overstatement, this may be the understatement of the year, Johnson says, quote, it's important for people to understand how dangerous alligators are. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, the whole joy of this is he's now going to paint the thing. He's, 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 he's not going to paint his horrible leg in the, I mean, he survived, yeah. right? Yeah. But he just sees it as another subject. By the way, the subject of this program is me, Dave Lefkowitz. The program is Dave's Gone By. It is a little bit afternoon Eastern time here in the neighborhood. We do this program every week from 9 until noonish or thereabouts on our Facebook page, Dave's Gone By. My darling and adorable wife, Dave's Joyce, uh, here goes the neighborhood. There should be. There should be a lot of catch-up. It's a festive occasion here on this October 3rd, the 766th episode of the show. What? I feel like it's March. I feel like we we went to bed in March, and we woke up, it's October. I feel, you know. Yeah, and it's still the first wave, babe. And still, we're still in it to win it. I has a lot of waves that is good as feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Are you second wave or third wave? Which wave are you? I'm not not the, the rich white woman phase. Right. I'm not no, that fast yeah. because I'm not rich. I'm, mm. I'm whitish mm. and I'm womanish, but I don't know. Oh, shout out to Helen Reddy. She died last week. She was woman. Now she's dead. And she's in her resting bed and got nothing. Sorry. Anyway, we're moving on with a couple more items for Greeley Crimes and Old Times on this Saturday, October 3rd, 2020. Let's do one more elsewhere because they've been piling up on us and then we'll move back to crimes and all times we're going to go all the way remember how you said i sounded russian for no particular yeah, reason before but now i can do something russian dateline moscow russian authorities arrested now i, I sound like bella lugosi russian authorities Authorities arresting a a former traffic police officer last week, Sergei Torop, claims, claims to be the reincarnation of, you want to take a stab on this one? That is, he claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus, 
And for three decades, this guy has run a cult in Siberia. Russia says he'll be charged with organizing an illegal religion, extorting money from followers, and emotionally abusing them. Torop, age 59, and he does have a long, uh, has beard and long gray hair, was arrested along with his helpers, Vadim Redkin, a former drummer in a boy band, and another aide, Vladimir Verdinikov. Um, let's find out a little bit more about him. Torop lost his job as a traffic officer back in 1989. And then he lost his mind when Soviet Russia collapsed. So he started the Church of the Last Testament, which has thousands of followers ranging from Siberian peasants to urban professionals. I am not God. David, is Siberia still a thing? So, yes, Siberia is still oh there. Well, what then? What? And this film, Enjoying yeah. People. Oh, by the way, it wasn't Torop. It's, 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 the guy's name is actually Vissarion, but he calls himself Torop. I am not God, says Vissarion, and it's a mistake to see Jesus as God, but I am the living word of God. Everything that God wants to say, he says through me. That's pretty cool. And the original ideology of the cult, Vissarion claimed Jesus was watching over people from an orbit close to Earth. Wow. And you know, the bird, what? I can see that because I watched Star Trek and I wouldn't believe that. Too. Could have been, could have been. Uh, and the Virgin Mary was, quote, running Russia. <laughs> That's wow. what Virgin Mary does, yeah. God bless her. Sisters are doing it. If Ivana, if Ivana Trump can run Trump Towers, why can't? Mm. The, the Virgin Mary would probably. She has the time. If she is a virgin, she has time to run Russia. It's true. But later, he declared himself to be. Jesus, he commu his commune mixes religion with lifestyle rules. They, you'll like this. Veganism is enforced because he is the beautiful vegan messiah. And monetary exchange is banned inside the commune. Followers wear austere clothing and count years. Check this out. When do you think is the first year in their calendar? 1961, of course, the year Torop was born. Nice. Christmas has been replaced by a feast day on January 14th. Why January 14th? You think? Of course, because it's Torop's birthday. <sighs> no word on how the commune, commune will function now that Torop's arrested, or why the sudden interest in the group, except that they seem to have sparred recently with local business interests. Will there be, maybe this year they'll sing, I'll, I'm dreaming of a free Torop. You know, on the first day of Torop, we went and gave to him a file in a cake. I don't know. But anyway, yes, he's been arrested, ladies and gentlemen. So if you are a member of the Church of the Last Testament, and you're looking for another religion to join, remember that uh, Rabbi Saul Solomon has his temple, Sons of Bitches, and he's king, he'll take anybody. He's basically desperate. So just, just send him a note and, and you know what I think money. Is so funny, what? I have to yeah, tell me. That the rabbi is obnoxious. Thank you. Inappropriate. Yes. All the guests talk to him and nobody ever comments about his insanity. They just interview him like, oh yeah, and then, you know, then I went to Harvard, I wrote a play. And he's just like, ah, you know, and people just ignore, like. That's the beautiful thing. Yeah. Do you think they've become immune to his insanity? Well, if they're familiar with the rabbi, of course they are. Also, I don't think the rabbi is so insane, but I'm 
closer to him than you are. But also when, when you're interviewed, the focus is on you. I mean, the only person, as we said, the only enemy of the rabbi was, um, well, a couple, but, but there was Manny Patinkin who wouldn't, who wouldn't give him the time of day. Why do you think that was? Because Manny Patinkin is a crazy, crazier than the rabbi. Do you think he like self-hates the fact that he's like Jewish if he's not a... No, he just figured it was going to be... Uh, a, what happened was um, many, many years ago on this program, Rabbi Saul Solomon was all set to interview Mandy Patinkin live on our show. And I mean, it was a live program. It was a live broadcast on, on terrestrial radio. And so Mandy called in at, at the proper time. The rabbi introduced him, said wonderful things about Patinkin, but in the rabbi's way. And then uh, Patinkin literally, literally just said, I don't think I want to do this. And hung up. Leaving the rabbi with like 10, 15 minutes of dead air. Because that's how long the, the interviews lasted so when we had an hour show. Like yeah, and then, and then the rabbi had to fill 10 minutes of airtime by insulting Mandy Patinkin, which is <laughs> one of my favorite segments ever. You can go find it. It's, it's on the website. But it's true. That's what the rabbi, because it, it wasn't even a pre-tape. The rabbi was literally left in a bind on live, on a live show with nothing to fill. So he filled it with invective. He filled it with hatred for Mandy Patinkin. I mean, that's wonderful. And but Rabbi, uh, but Mandy Patinkin remains an enemy of the program for that reason. So, and he was one of the people who didn't look at the rabbi and said, "Oh, you're you're crazy, you're funny, and you're asking interesting questions. Let me just roll with it." You know, he didn't want to roll with it because he's crazy and an asshole. This is why. And Mandy, if you're listening and watching, if you want to beg forgiveness, we'll get you on next week. So, so there you go. Anywho, let's finish up this today. Uh, sorry, this, um, see, after the three-hour mark, I started to lose it. This really crimes an old-time segment of Dave's Gone By. So we've been, uh, let's have a little more crime here. A caller on 12th Street said he planned to move after he was told that his upstairs neighbor was not committing a crime by smoking pot. The caller said he was getting high from it. <laughs> and when he confronted the neighbor, the neighbor said he would, quote, live his life the way he wants to, expletive everyone else. Whoa. I know, right? Well, but then again, Colorado's close to New Hampshire and that live free or... Really? It's like rugged individualism, but usually the people who smoke the pot should be happy. Well, think about it. Who's the one pot smoker, don't mention names, that oh, we know? I know. He was like, oh yeah, God. yeah. He, really? He's like Marine Scary. He was like, what do you, like Baruch, but he was like a, a servant, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, so it doesn't always. And besides, the pot smoker's absolutely right. If it's not illegal anymore, and he wants to do it. Yeah, but, you, but their laws, like, in your home, you know, yeah, and if yeah. the smell comes through the wall, first of all, it's kind of unlikely. I, I've never smoked pot. Well, I wouldn't my, know. My friend, right? Yeah. Who, you know, had some job stuff. She yeah. lived in a third floor walk-up, and we could smell it from the other neighbors. And I was like, where is that coming from? 
because there's like the vents that are between the houses, and when you turn on the vent, right, it would yeah. like bring in the smell. I was like, what is that? I didn't realize I got like cow licks all along the back of my head there. Yeah, I don't know what that, you don't want to comb your hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. It's good now. Bring it forward. Bring it forward. You know, you got go. one sticking out. Oh, uh, still? Yeah, there's nothing I can well, do about. Oh, look at this. The jughead look. It makes you very cute, honey. Well, thank you. More approachable, not so perfect, you know. <laughs> Nobody, nobody in my life has ever called me so perfect. Ever. You're the perfect man. You're no, not my grandfather you. was the saint, but you're pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty decent. Let's do one more crime and then move on with a couple more segments of the show. Here's a, here's a crime for you. Police, oh, this is perfect. Police responded to First Street Road where a caller reported a neighbor had an inflatable in the backyard Making a loud noise. Okay. Police said it was barely audible. David. Yes. Maybe they had, you know, I want to get you that for your birthday. That what? I'll show you. Yes. Joyce says, see, I love this. I love this ketchup. I love the grill that we got. Apparently, they make miniature versions of the things that you see in car washes and, and for uh, and auto sales places see, of the look, giant waving I man. I for like seven ninety nine at Target. Oh, hell yeah. Wacky inflatable yeah. tube, look. This is, you put it on your desk, it's inflatable, and waves. Can I, can I, this is, oh, this is so, oh, oh, I want this. Every time that I get something, I find something else that I also want. Look, <laughs> look at that. No truer words spoken. Wacky, waving, inflatable tube guy. Ones. The man that I saw, I saw it on Facebook. The man had it, it looked even better. Wacky, waving, inflatable tube guy. Which, by the way, is why I called my penis on our honeymoon. But there you go. Oh. Thank you. Thank you ever so oh, much. It's out of stock. I can't get it. Oh, no. It's not. It can't be out of stock. For $8, was shipping 500 Inflatable tube guy. Inflatable. And give me a good one. one Please. I want a wacky, inflatable tube Can you get me, like, the giant one that they have outside the cleaners? Oh, no, he's not? Oh, that's oh, a shame. That one's, oh, that's not Wait, good. is there a book about... Can you click on that, that thing? There's a book about inflatable tube guy? Yeah, it's called uh, uh, Flailing in Life. Oh! Yes, it sort of looks like a french fry. He might scare Potato. But there's actually a book. Lessons from <laughs> the uh, wacky, waving, inflatable tube guy. I've got to read this book now. I'm yeah, sure it's moving and touching. His arms are actually in a swastika shape, which is scary. Well, we're going to do a weird dance move because we have just finished this edition of Greeley Crimes and Old Times. It's near a book called People I Want to Punch in the Throat. <laughs> oh, I have a long list. Mr. Horace Greeley was no fool. I'm sure that you agree with me that Greeley was no fool. But he is getting a new set. Mr. Greeley was no fool. Yippee-yay, 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 yippee-yay. Oh, that's fantastic. We that's must. A better one. That's a better one. This is the greatest thing ever. Does it wave? Yeah, look at look pictures. at this. Look at that. Oh my goodness. 
Oh, I need that. Okay. Anything in my life by my birthday. Yeah, get it for your birthday. Oh, you can look through Amazon and pick the one you want, but I think this one's got That's fantastic. Because it's nice and big, you know, it's well, as tall. Let's see, let's see the reviews, okay? Yeah, make sure it's well made. I got this for my birthday. Stocking stuffer. Yeah. Cute but loud. Apparently it's not loud. That's what the guy was complaining about. Yeah. A noisy inflatable. Yeah, I don't know, you know. You have to decide if it's something you want, honey. Okay. Oh, it's something I want, honey. It's okay. something I want. Okay. Anyway, we still have our Colorado Limerick of the Dam to do. We're going to talk about our friends of the neighborhood briefly. And I think that will carry us through the rest of the show. But before then, as promised, old Abe, even though he hasn't had a moment to think about it, is going to try and talk extemporaneously about a word. See, early in the broadcast... My wonderful wife, Joyce. I want to show you a video of the tube man. Oh, Joyce, look for a video of the tube. That's not a video of the tube man. Well, she she picked out a word. Oh, oh, hold on. Joyce is showing. I can't really see it if I hold it up. Hold on, let me let me see. This is this is incredible. It's the wacky inflatable tube. You can already see how wacky it is from that smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just open the box, dude. All right, yes, you're reading the box. How long is this video? Right. He's, oh, he's looking at the box. There's the French fry guy. Um, oh, he's doing it. The pro he, he has the patience to use a box cutter. He's opening it. He's doing it. He's pulling it out. And he's taking that out. Um, let's see. Oh, there's instructions because this could go wrong. Oh, look at that little weird fat boy. All right, don't even with no fingers. That's just wrong. Wacky, waving, inflatable tube guy, and history and its uses. No idea. Well, I guess if Donald Trump is incapacitated and we need a temporary president, we could do worse. All right, let's see. Let's see. He's opening it. Okay, so don't you hate that? Don't you hate that scotch tape that you have to find where it starts? And you, oh, we got it quickly. That's good. All right. And now here, here it is. Well, there's a little fan. I can't imagine that works for more than like a week or two. Okay, it's a little roto-tiller thing. Ah, bring my hand. Let's try it on. Does it plug in somewhere? Oh, it's got batteries. Oh, oh you can do it into a wall. That's good. Dude, it's, it's not rocket science. Just put the battery in it. Yes! Is it loud? You can't tell. Well, he hasn't turned it on yet. So he's doing, he's looking. See, you can plug it. There should be a thing for plugging into the wall, Ooh. which is bigger than just doing a double A battery. Or just plug it in oh, your computer. What the hell? What is he doing? <laughs> I think that's a Trojan 4X right yeah, there. That's not good. Oh, look at oh, it. Oh, he's cute. That will make the girls happy. All right. Just, just do it. The, the video's half over already. He's not going to die anything with it. Yeah. All right. He's unboxing, but you need to inflate the thing. He's having a little too much fun. Is it two-headed? Oh, that's his arms. He yeah. should have arms. Oh, look I, at those little arms. Can, can we do this? Can, oh, yeah. Okay. That was so strenuous. He had to go to the bathroom. He had to go look had it, to look lie it, down. Look oh, it, look my it. God. You want that? I believe I do. Okay. I believe I do. I don't know how noisy oh, it is. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. David. Oh, he does side to side and back and forth. Look at that. That's, I thought, oh my God. That's a little too vigorous. Can you lower that? Listen, I don't know. 
Whoa, I guess it's going whoa, to whoa. That's crazy. I will have moments of fun with this. You could have it on your show, too. Your I, will, I will be short sighted by this for 15 like, minutes. Well, I, I saw a blue one, too. I'm and then be to, bored. But oh, my God. You different colors, David, okay? Oh. You pick the one you want for your birthday. You pick it, I'll buy it for you. And I say to myself, what a wonderful world. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, the inflatable, wacky inflatable dude. It's wacky, oh. waving, inflatable dude. Wacky, yes. waving, inflatable dude. In case you're, you're now oh, oh. running off to buy them too. I think there's a bunch of them. Well, there should be a bunch of them. And, and, uh, they should be made by various different companies so that there's competition. And whoa! Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now this has a kind of zen to it. <laughs> You're actually watching the latest play by Charles L. Me and, and uh, Pina Bosch. His daughter would do this. Oh, well, yeah, well, his daughter and, and maybe, um, not Martha Clark, what's her name, Anne Bogart. See, there's music to this and, and oh, look, look at them. They're really, wow. This you is get more than one. Maybe get three of them. Strangest production of Jesus Christ Superstar I've ever seen. I think you could get three of them. I think I think we must. You get five of them, one for every decade. Wow, that's just that's just wow. Well, you have to decide. It's oh. beautiful. Look at how many this. You could get a bunch like this. Wouldn't that be fantastic? At that price, if they have like in bulk. Running press. And just just leave them in the room doing that all day. If you, instead of watching a fish tank, you'd just be watching like inflatable wavy wavy dude. I love it. I love it. Anyway, I love doing this show. It's oh, called that's advertisement for the book. That the thing we just saw oh, was an advertisement. It's a great book. advertisement. That's very smart. Urban Outfitters has it. That's it. It looks very nice, David. I absolutely love it. This is a thing I need. I this is what I need it. in my life right now. I love it. But let me let me let me get back to Dave's big dick shenanigans because. Here it is. Here's the book that Joyce opened. I'm going to put it in the cart, baby. Oh, please do. Three hours ago uh, on the program, Joyce grabbed this dick, Shaneri, of mine, and at random opened it up and put her finger down. And at first we thought she, she put her finger on Cluffer, which doesn't even exist. But it turns out to be plunder is the word. Plunder, uh, which means it is to rob... A person or place by force, especially uh, in warfare, or to just take property by force or fraud, so kind of stealing, or as a noun, it is the act of plundering, pillaging, goods taken by force or fraud, and so forth. So it's not, not, a, not a nice word, but that is the word for today in the neighborhood, as I do this segment that we call Dave's Big Dick, Chenary. <laughs> Extra, tell all about it. It's Dave's Big Dictionary. So it occurred to me, fortunately or not, that plunder doesn't really enter into my, my vocabulary at any stage of my life. There's no time when I was, say, working on Wall Street or something like that where I would just you know, pillage and plunder and, and so forth and, and make a killing and, and you know, work for uh, some kind of Wall Street firm that's too big to fail and just take home millions of dollars before the FCC caught on and 
let me keep my ill-gotten goods. I never, never had that. I was never in that position. So you hear the word plunder, I hear it. First, of course, I think of pirates, and then pirates of the Caribbean, and treasure chests, and things, which I, I would, I can't, as, as fun as certainly the first movie was, I can't ever imagine like being a pirate or one of these Somalian guys, because sometimes, you know, in an adventurous spirit, you can think of yourself doing something else. You, you dream maybe of being the president at some point. You dream of being a bank robber uh, and getting away with things. But I never had the pirate dream. Much as I love the water, much as I enjoy being on a boat and would love to take a cruise someday. Yes, it does. Oh, it's so cute. But plunder, uh, but, but, but being that whole pirate life of the regimented stuff, which is essentially another version of the military, if you think about it, as a captain and everyone on down, I, I can't ever, it was never for me. That, that was never a fantasy of mine. So even there, plunder doesn't really enter into it, but it also made me wonder, oh in, the, in the moments I've had on this show, to wonder about anything. Oh, Tris is just looking for items now on um, Urban Outfitters. What is it? I'm getting it's a, it's a little chick. It's a potato light. Oh, it's a potato! Yes, for 25 I thought it was a chicken. Oh, look how cute! That's your birthday present, too. It's a nightlight. We can use it as a nightlight. I it's love a it. It's a little baby tater. Oh. Oh, my, he's crying. I think he's is so it, cute. He's very sweet. He's, he looks like Molang and Poo Poo. He is. So, um, plunder is the word from Dave's Big Dictionary. And it did make me have a moral quandary moment of wondering if I was, you know, Charles, Chuck Me was talking about Vietnam before. If I was a soldier somewhere and dealing with an opposing force and being shot at every day and watching my comrades get shot at and killed or hurt or wounded and, and so forth and learning to hate the enemy because you do, whether they're the Nazis and you hate them for a very good reason, or they're, you know, communist North Vietnamese, North Koreans, you hate them because you're told to. Uh, either way, you know, if you're in that situation, you're going to hate the enemy. You're going to hate being there. You're going to hate everything about it. And you're going to hate the people that are trying to kill you and that you're going to try and kill. And then I guess there are certain laws from the Geneva Convention that tell you when you go into a place, and you've, you're lucky, you've won the battle and you've survived, right? Do you take what they call the spoils of war? Do you then go in there and just ransack and ravish and ravage? I hope not. Well, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to behave decently like soldiers. But of course, you know, when Sherman marched through the South, he burned, he didn't bother pillaging, he just burned the place down, right? And when, you know, the Russians came in at the end of World War II and were dealing with the people and the Nazis and the people in Germany and, and these Eastern European countries, they apparently were not very nice. <laughs> they just shoot people at random. They were just like, you know, they would take revenge for millions of Russians dying during World War II and, and for everything the Nazis did. Well, this is what plunder brings to mind. I'm like, would I be a plunderer. Would I, in that position of being in a victorious force on the ground in some country, wherever, 
and would, if the commander looked the other way or even encouraged it, would I be stuffing my pockets? Would I be someone who would go on the ground to like a dead body and grab their, their watch or, or, you know, grab their wallet and, and take? Because spoils, you know, they lost, I won, I take. Um, would I rape the women? You know, if I were in that position, I hated the other people so much. I was there to kill them, right? I tried to kill them. They tried to kill me. Maybe I killed a couple. Maybe they killed a couple on my side. Would I then, now that, you know, we've defeated you people, you're garbage to us now. You're lucky we're letting you live. Oh, she's cute. Let me take her into a hut for half an hour, you know? And I, I just, I would love to say, well, no, no, no. I certainly would not take or steal or, or take riches or, or go into people's houses with my rifle and just say, okay, you just sit over there. I'm just going to take whatever's valuable and, and bring them back because you, you stole all the valuables from, you know, the Jews off their walls and, and hid the art. Well, I'm going to say if I were like, it were 1946, let's say. My Uncle Bob raided a Nazi warehouse. They took stuff. Right. Her choice is saying her Uncle Bob. They all that well because the commanding officers were watching. They weren't taking priceless works of art and drawer. Maybe they were, if they weren't being looked at. Maybe they stuffed their pockets with somebody's antique ring that their great grandmother gave them. But now the husband was dead from the war. Some SS officer. They're just there. They're going to be on the street begging and, and hooking for money. And you're going to just, yeah, you know what? You killed six million of my people. I think I will take this ring out of the drawer and, and mail it back to my girlfriend back home in New York or New Jersey. And I've got to say, you know, I try to be a pretty moral guy overall in my life, but I think I would be a plunderer. I feel like if given the opportunity and given the sense of revenge and hatred I would have, towards these people, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I would figure, you know what? I earned this. I don't make a lot of money in this army that I'm in. Maybe they're giving me a free college education or, or a stipend or something. And then, hey, free Broadway show tickets when they're, thanks to the USO. But I'm not getting rich off this. I'm still in a situation that might be a little bit dangerous. And I'm only here because these people declared war on us. Let me take what's mine, you know? Let me, if I'm in a particularly bad mood, and I haven't had my five cups of coffee in the day, let me just take a... Five cups of coffee, good God Let me take a torch to their yurt and just watch them sit outside screaming while their home burns down. Because why? Well, just because at that point. Just because revenge. Just because hatred. Just because. I... You know, that's what plunder makes me think of. It, it makes me think I'm... Well, just watch the nanny. Well, just for... The nanny was a fun show. What do you mean? Uh, that you think that would be... I would torture them not by burning their place down, Choice says, but by making them watch um, episodes one after another after another, binge-watching <laughs> the nanny with Fran Drescher. Yeah. I know, there were worse things to binge-watch, you know? Anyway... Well, does plunder bring up anything else to mind? Plunder, you're doing more pillage than plundering, actually. 
Well, the raping is pillage. What is the difference between pillage? Pillage. Pillage is like pillage, pillage, you plunder down under. You plunder down under. No, but I guess pillaging is much more violent and vengeful. Plundering is just taking stuff. It's just stealing. So, yeah. Actually, I feel a little better about myself. I, I like to think that maybe I wouldn't pillage. I would plunder, but I wouldn't do so much pillaging. Pillaging would not be on my agenda. I would not, not be. You would not pillage or plunder if you had such anything with soap, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but like if, if there was a Vietnamese woman, I wouldn't rape her and then slit her throat. But I would, like, take her. You'd ask her to make you, like, a full lunch. Yes. <laughs> I would ask, you know, can, can you make not too spicy, don't use too much cilantro, but, but make me a lunch war and, and make me with leftovers so I have dinner later. And then I'll leave you alone. I'm not going to burn anything down i'll take that from you maybe what should i you know, oh that, that looks nice what do you, you what they, they had nothing what would i even take i think oh that's a a good looking machete you have i'll take it you know? so plunder i would pillage pillage i wouldn't i wouldn't pillage the village but i would plunder down under and that's dave's big dictionary <laughs> For this Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, with me, Dave Lefkowitz, my wonderful wife, Joyce, ketchup, and our potato friends, and our etrog friend, and our, our egg friend. We didn't even say hi to Egg. Hey, Egg. Oh, he's not really. Come on. Oh, my God. So many people joined again. I can't keep track. Yeah. He's just a shell of his former self. <laughs> anyway, we're almost done with Dave's Gone By, but we still have our Colorado. Thank you. Thank you very much. We still have our Colorado Limerick of the Damned to do, but not before we uh, remind you of some of the friends of the neighborhood. Now, friends are folks who have been on this program in months and years past. For example, Chuck Me, the playwright, whose play Utopia is going to be done by Cutting Bowl Theater online virtually. You can sign up to watch it for about two, three weeks from October 16th through November 15th. So it's a, it's a full month online, and it will be premiering on the 16th of October. It's called Utopia. Well, um, I've got to say that Chuck Me is now a friend of the neighborhood. He's someone who's been on the program. Fabulous guest. And we wish him much success with this play and all his other work. But the point is also, we'll keep tabs. You know, if you, that, that other play he mentioned, uh, what was the name of it with Streb? Uh, Falling and something. It was the New Ball Theater. Yeah. It was the Peak Festival in New Jersey. It's going to be on, on Channel 13 at some point. Falling and leaving or laughing or loving. Probably loving. He's into that. A lot. Yeah, if you find that, that'd be great. It's uh, Chuck Me, W-N-E-T, Falling And. Because I thought it was, when I was listening to the rabbi, it sounded like Falling In Love, but it's... It says this month in Columbia. Oh, 19, it's in Columbia. Falling And Loving. Falling And Loving. It's this month in Columbia. So he will be doing that. So Chuck Me, friend of the neighborhood, we'll keep tabs on him going forward. We will also keep tabs on many of our other friends. What about, what about it, Columbia? The world premiere was in Columbia in 2019. He's an Obie winner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can't find the dates. Where would I look on his website? Well, it was, so, yeah, look for it when it's going to be on WNET in New York. Cool, cool. And remember that you can go to his website and read all his plays and perform them for yourselves. It, it's, it's free and open. But these are the friends of the neighborhood. So there's going to be a, um, a benefit video for the Actors Fund, and it's going to be on Vimeo, not YouTube, but it's going to be called The Theater Will Survive. And among the people who are involved in it, there's co-host Michael Colby, who is uh, our friend of the neighborhood, and some of the performers in this overall benefit video include so many friends of ours, including Jason Grah, Ben Vereen, Robert Cuccioli, Anita Gillette, and Anne Harada. All of them. That's like um, as many as we've ever had in one sitting who've been on this program. So check that out. The theater will survive. Want to let you know that um, Stephen Tobolowski, the actor, is doing a podcast now. It's called TobolowskiFiles.com. T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y Files. Stephen Tobolowski, probably best known for appearing in the movie Groundhog Day, but he's done a whole bunch of other stuff since. And now I didn't realize he's got like 90 of these podcasts already, all about his life, his life as an actor, going through the world. I, I stopped by them. They seem really interesting. I haven't had time to listen to one of them, but I'm going to try. It's Stephen Tobolowski, TobolowskiFiles.com. Want to let you know that today, Congratulations to Alan Menken, who is getting the Hollywood in Vienna Max Steiner Award for film music. So a big, big congratulations to our very talented theater friend, Alan Menken. Tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on YouTube, Mike Agronoff, the folk singer, is being part of the Folk Project Television series, I guess it is. You can watch that on YouTube, Mike Agronoff. Our beloved Christine Lavin, this Wednesday, she will be appearing online on the Jim Masters show. So just go to her website and find out all the stuff that she is doing. Christine Lavin. Loudon Wainwright, he has a new album out. It's called I'd Rather Lead a Band. And that is being released this Friday, October 9th, Loudon Wainwright. And then we mentioned earlier Richard Nelson. He's doing these Apple family plays. These, he started these plays, doing them at the public theater live, and then the pandemic hit. And now his last couple of plays are being done as Zoom pieces. He's got a new one. It's called Incidental Moments of the Day, and it's running now through November 5th. It also features our friend J.O. Sanders. It's a free stream that benefits the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation. So you can watch for free, but they want you to donate. The website is theapplefamilyplays.com. Want to remind you that our comedy writing friend and our comedy directing friend, Steve Kaplan, is taking orders for his next online comedy intensive, which he's going to start October 10th. So you have only a few more days to sign up for the online comedy intensive. And of course, Steve Kaplan, I'm going to talk about theater in the 1970s and 80s. Kaplan was the guy who co-founded Manhattan Punchline, the off 
Broadway Theater. Reminding you that Dr. Demento has his old Dr. Demento shows and brand new ones at drdemento.com for a small fee. Stagebuggy.com is this cool website about New York creativity, which was found, excuse me, founded by our friend Evan Seplo. It's stagebuddy.com. And I also want to remind you that Bob Cudmore does podcasts about upstate New York history at bobcudmore.com. And how can I forget Leslie Hoban Blake, who was on our program today, on our Today Yesterday quiz. Leslie is part of a new podcast with our other friend, Charlie Gross. They are co-hosting a show called Critics Circle that you can find on YouTube. And then, of course, our other friend, David Sheward. You can certainly find him and read his work at theaterlife.com and daviddesk.com is for his blog. So thank you both, especially to our friends of the neighborhood, David Sheward, Leslie Hoban Blake, and all the wonderful friends of the neighborhood. <clears throat> Man, you know when you, you talk for three and a half hours straight, it kind of it kind of does things to your brain and your mouth. You know, I start I start talking like Rand Paul, and I apologize for that, but. We do have a little bit more, little bit more time, just enough time to astonish, astound, and disgust you with a Colorado limerick of the damned. Because Joyce and I lived in Colorado for a bunch of years, and I got it into my head for no particular reason to write a poem about every possible place in Colorado that I could. These short five-line limerick poems about everything from, you know, humongous Denver to tiny little nowhere towns that you've never heard of. I've got more than 120 of them now, amazingly enough, and I do one a week in a segment that we do call our Colorado Limerick of the Damned. A limerick is a comic verse of five lines in which lines one, two, and five end with words that rhyme. And likewise, verses three and four also end with words that rhyme. So this is a limerick. The voice of Christine Lavin there telling us how wonderful Colorado, Rado, Rado, Rado is because we are doing our Colorado limerick of the damned where we go to Custer, Colorado. We're going to muster the excitement of Custer for you. Custer is a sparsely populated county in South Central Colorado, and it was named after General George Armstrong Custer of the Civil War and the Indian Wars. Settled in the 1870s when there was a silver rush in that area of Colorado. During the late 19th century, they even had a railroad line connected there, but that was permanently closed after a few disastrous floods. Since then, and the place has been properly irrigated. It's still there, and it serves mostly for cattle ranching. So yes, Custer, Colorado, all these places still on the map, even if some of them are designating as kind of unofficial ghost towns. But I have written a poem about Custer, Colorado, and it's uh, not something you want the children to hear, so do hustle them out of the room before I start telling it, because it is a properly improper limerick. 
of the damned for Custer. <clears throat> a popular hooker in Custer is losing a bit of her luster. Though far from a hag, she's starting to sag and can't ride a dick like she yuster. Send your comments and complaints to Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. That's D A V E S G O N E B Y at AOL.com. I read them all. I respond to most. Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. Would love to hear from you. You're also welcome to message me if you're one of my many friends on Facebook or just post in uh, the show on Facebook. I don't, I have to say, if, if you post on underneath the show after the show's over, I don't necessarily get to read all of those. But if you just want to send a public message on Facebook, that's totally fine. Tell me what you think of the show. Suggestions of who should be on the show and other segments that we might do. Would love, love, love to hear from you either on Facebook or Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. Do also follow the show on Twitter. Radio Dave 2 is the way to do that. Radio Dave and the number Two is my Twitter handle. I want to mention also that Rabbi Saul Solomon, he's got a Twitter feed at Rabbi Saul Solomon. So you're going to want to follow his stuff there and definitely check out his website, shalomdammit.com. Shalom, D-A-M-I-T, shalomdammit.com. This is the place to read his little sermons, his rabbinical reflections, and, and, and to hear them as well. You can also watch his hilarious TV show, Shalom Dammit, Rabbi Saul Solomon's Peace, Love, and Acid Reflux Hour. There are 10 half-hour episodes. They have links to all of them for free on the site. I think they're wonderful. And, and, and he even got the blessing from Chuck Mee, saying that he's a, he's a wonderful performer and writer. So you can watch footage of his stage show, his entire show, Shalom Dammit, and even with Rabbi Saul Solomon, that is available at shalomdammit.com. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the show. That's what we've done this whole week, man. Well, on behalf of me and Heshi, Bumi, and Soya, and my darling and adorable wife, Joyce, Joyce, do you have anything? Dress is also busy taking pictures of the show. We'll steal a few of those. Uh, anything else I have to talk about? No, we'll talk about the octopus next week, maybe. And uh, <laughs> and maybe maybe by that time, they will fix the bottle return machine at oh, the local King Cullen. I'm telling you, it, it's 50-50. Every time I go, to, go shopping at our local King Cullen, they have two, <laughs> they have a row of these machines that are taking back bottles, cans, and glass. And, you know, I know they're supposed to be helping the environment, but all I see when I go to this place is either the two bottle, the, the, the two plastic bottle machines are broken, or one of them is broken and somebody with four million bottles is using it. <laughs> But the other thing I, I was thinking about was like a week ago, uh, I was standing there in, inputting the bottles and you know, was complaining. Why don't you just give one of the people like the bottles to get like an estimate? You know? I, who's going to do it? There, there was a guy a couple of weeks ago yeah. who was standing there. They got rid of him. I think they got the police to shoo him away. 
who, who would take your bottles for you, count them out, and then give you the change so you didn't have to stand at the machine. That's better. I don't know. He got, I think he got an extra three cents out of every bottle, which is, well, God bless him. But this thing of, of going there, because you don't see from the... jobs during COVID. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you don't see from the car where you're parked whether the machines are working. So you're, you're, you're schlepping these garbage bags full of bottles. You so get up to the machine. Town, in Food Town, they count it for you. You just hand them the bag and they count Really? The they still do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, even in the pandemic, they're doing that? I don't know. I'm it's saying, I don't think so. I think you kind of got to do it yourself. Um, but thing is, one time I was there and, you know, I'm just coming to the guy next. He was talking, I was talking, and, and said, well, at least the machines are working. And he said, well, yeah, you, you're not taking the caps off the bottles. You got to do that. I'm like, what do you mean? And it's like, you're supposed to, supposedly, yes. although there's no sign for this. There's no mention of this on the machine that really, to save the machine, you're supposed to unscrew the plastic cap off the plastic bottle and then put the bottle in. Don't put the bottle in with the bottle cap because eventually the cap gets caught in the gears and the, the machine tends to break a lot more often. So it occurs to me that here we are, trying to save the environment, right? Trying to do this so that there isn't much, as much plastic floating around in the garbage that gets into seagulls' throats and goes into the oceans and kills the algae and stuff. So fine, I'm throwing bottle after bottle into the machine, unscrewing these caps, and what am I doing with the caps? These hard plastic bottle caps, they're in this bag, I overturn the bag into the garbage. So, what I'm saying, or, or worse, you know, there's, there's a terrible situation when you're standing at these machines giving these bottles back because invariably people are having accidents and messes and disasters. So now you're stepping on other people's bottle caps. Well, no, they're, they're, what, what's happening is, you know, you, you've only go each time to take a bottle cap, throw it in a bag, or throw it in the, the garbage can seven feet away. You're just dropping the bottle caps on the floor or on the, um, it's outdoors, on the cement. Oh, so now you're, you're making sure not to slip and trip and get your feet crushed on <laughs> these bottle caps. It's like Studio 54 on a Sunday. Yeah, it's true. Like the night after a big party. And then, of course, you're standing just one machine away from the thing that takes glass. So, of course, there's people who had issues where they dropped a beer bottle and it shattered. Oh and so there's God. glass everywhere, bottle caps, and we're saving the environment. <laughs> and this is when the machines are working. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be something else to do. I don't know. But I just wanted to get that off my chest, ladies and gentlemen. My chest that is showing I put ketchup on my ketchup, my friends. On this fantastically Heinzian edition of Dave's Gone By. I want to thank you all for tuning in and sharing this Saturday with me in the neighborhood. For more information about the show, go to davesgoneby.com. That is also where the archives reside. You can also find our archives at archive.org by looking for Dave's Gone By and the podcasts at castbox.fm. Plus all this material on YouTube as, as well. But remember, davesgoneby.com is our home base. It is our website for the show, along with this Facebook page. Tell their friends, Tell your family, we're here. We've been doing this for 18 years. Chai, as Rabbi Saul would say. Our 20th anniversary, as he would say. Um, you know, I'm dancing around the sukkah in my mind. <laughs> I've got, I got the sukkahs in my tukkahs, ladies and gentlemen. So thank you, my darling, adorable wife, Joyce. 
Thank you, Davidians, for watching. Thank you, new friend of the neighborhood, Chuck Me, She His Show Utopia. Thank you to our old friends of the neighborhood, David Schubert and Leslie Hoban Blake. And whew, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you for giving this, me this three and a half, four hour window every Saturday morning to entertain you with Dave's Gone By. And see you next week for Sinkastora and Gone By. He's gone by. He's gone by. Look, I don't need the wavy man. I got this. It does the same thing. It's fantastic. Look at it. Yeah. I need more hobbies. And gone by. <laughs>